Hey guys, welcome to We Weren't Friends in High School, the podcast where I reunite with high school classmates for my graduating class of Wissahickon High School in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I'm Brad Corbett, class of 2001. Thanks again to Dustin Canner, episode 212, which is in the archives now on the audio stream and at youtube.com slash redshirtplaya. It was fun going back with Dustin, and I heard from a few classmates that enjoyed some of the throwback nostalgia that we were talking about. So again, that's episode 212 in the archives, Dustin Canner. I don't know if you guys can hear that. It is pouring outside. Anyway, with the holidays coming up, one of the things that was always tradition in my family was the day after Thanksgiving, my mom and I would go to the movies. So I thought it would be the perfect time to release a special episode of We Weren't Friends in High School, 90s Movie Club. That's right. We're going to the movies. Myself, Kelly Brook, and Chrissy Shuck, who has not done an episode yet, got together and we reviewed... 2000s film The Skulls starring Joshua Jackson and Paul Walker. If you listen to my episode with Kelly, we were joking about Joshua Jackson and how much we liked him and started talking about The Skulls and Chrissy on Instagram chimed in and said how much she loved that movie. And so I hit them both up and I said, guys want to watch it and then talk about it? And they were like, absolutely. So Here we are. I was hoping that I would have been able to get an actual podcast with Chrissy done, but the timing kept working against us. Nevertheless, we're going to be talking about the film. We'll be talking about high school as it relates to this ridiculous time capsule of a movie, and it's all available on YouTube, youtube.com slash redshirtplaya. Bonus episode on the YouTube page, and that will be the day after Thanksgiving. Stay up to date with all this stuff on the Instagram at We Weren't Friends in High School and on Facebook at WWFNHS. Still a regular show coming out in two weeks. I'll tell you that guest at the end of this episode. But this week, my guest is Kimberly Kosh, a.k.a. Kim Clauder. Kim and I have known each other, I guess, since Shady Grove, but we spent most of our time around each other in high school, in chorus and in musicals. I've been pretty open about my feelings about high school musicals and high school chorus programs and my interactions with the teachers there and my disappointment in the way that my musical career ended up in high school. And this was a great opportunity to be able to talk to someone who was as heavily involved as I was, maybe even more so. On top of that, Kim is involved in local politics and is the Whitpain Township supervisor. So, of course, knowing my interest level in politics, you know, I really wanted to get the story on how Kim got involved in politics. I really enjoyed catching up with Kim, her perspective on life and some of the feelings that she was able to remind me of in high school uh, were brand new for the podcast. So I look forward to you guys hearing this conversation so, without any further ado, Kimberly Kosh, a.k.a. Kim Clauder. I love the place. It's really nice. Thanks. Um, it's funny. I usually do it from this way, um, but I'm doing it from this way. So, I got a new laptop, and it handles light totally differently. So, until I get more lights, it just works better to go this way. 
Well, I'm feeling your pain in the sense that I usually run professional ones downstairs in my living room in front of my nice fancy bookshelf. <laughs> but my husband's working from home today mm-hmm. and my son's in his bedroom and my daughter's down in the, the living room. And so I'm teaching from my bedroom and he just got on a meeting. So you get my bedroom. <laughs> everyone's got a, everyone's got a location. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Is- I felt funny about that when I started teaching from home instead of going into the building and I'm like, oh, my students are going to be in my bedroom every day. Is that weird? <laughs> like, <laughs> so I make the bed. <laughs> it's funny, like the things that now we had to start when I first started doing these on Zoom um, and I first started connecting. I can't remember who it was. I think it was like Kelly Brailsford or someone like that. And I remember it was like, oh, oh, I know it, it was Susie and, and Brianne. And we did like a happy hour thing. And I used to have like, this place used to be different before quarantine, but I was here so long, I got sick of where everything was. So I got all new furniture and like I rearranged everything, but it was all with like the idea of like, okay, how's this going to look on camera? (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I I held a meeting. I did a fundraiser this summer and the county treasurer texted me halfway through. He's like, rating your Skype space. (laughs) I'm like, wait, is this a thing? I didn't know this was a thing. So I got a nine because I didn't have a plant. What's funny is like, I'm so interested in that now. Mm-hmm. I read like all those generic, you know, clickbait top 15 things not to do on a zoom top 20 tips of to have great lighting. And I just go like, Oh, I do all like, there's nothing new. There is no new trick with zoom. Just don't put too much light behind you. And that's about it. And try and square it up. Like that's, but I keep reading all these clickbait articles. Like maybe I'll learn something new to just yeah. have that Zoom video. That's true. You know, it, it's funny though, how it's changed in the last couple of weeks based on the time of day. So all of my summer township meetings that are have been virtual, I do them from the living room and I've got a big window in front of me. Um, you know, and my lighting's usually fine, even though they go late. But we start our meetings at five or at seven. And by the by, middle of my meeting, one day I'm hitting the mute button and yelling up to my husband, bring down a lamp because I'm in the dark. And light. I can't see and they can't see me and it's getting weird. Yes. <laughs> weird is the best term for that. Yes. I'm in, a, I'm in a writing group with some friends and we would we'll start like around like five or six, but now over the last month or two, it's, you know, when it gets into like seven, seven thirty range and I'm still, and everyone's just talking, you're not really paying attention and you have light around you, but not the proper lighting for this. And eventually you realize, oh, no one can see me. And I look real creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get why my students are weird about their video. Although some of them are more aggressive about it than others. <laughs> I'm like, mm. They've been the trained for this their whole life. Yeah, really. They're, the first day that they all were virtual with me, I told them they needed to put their cameras on, which our district is is asking them to do. And I, I got seasick because all the girls were... The whole time, I'm like, stop looking at yourselves. You're fine. Just see. <laughs> As a person that is self-admittedly super vain, I can't, I can't blame them. You know, it's occasionally I will be checking myself out too. And like, Oh, how do I, I realized 
by township Zoom meeting number three that I was doing a little bit too much of the, the hair flipping myself. So it's now a cognitive, don't touch it, just try to leave it. <laughs> it's so weird to look at yourself while you're, it's such an unnatural thing that we all now are just trying to get ourselves used to. But like I said, kids have been preparing for this for their whole life. <laughs> this is true with their selfies and whatnot. <laughs> so how you been? You're still, uh, you're still in the area, huh? I am. I, I really didn't go far. I went to the other side of the street and up five doors. <laughs> so I stayed exactly where I was. Well, Kim, at least you know all the good restaurants. I do. And I know uh, all my neighbors. Actually, my next door neighbors are the Linebox, Andrew Linebox parents. Yeah. So they're our next door neighbors now. And uh, most of the neighbors, or many of them we knew. And that was kind of nice. It was nice when we bought the house. Um, so we bought a townhouse in Whitpain when we were first getting married. And the idea was, you know, we'd keep this until we had kids and, or a kid, and then it was going to be time to move. Cause it's a, it was a one bedroom with a den. So I had our first child, our son, and we decided obviously we needed to just start looking. We put doors on the den and that was his bedroom and it was fine, but we were going to outgrow that space pretty quickly. That of course was 2009 and the market crashed and nothing was for sale and we could not get nearly the return on the investment that we had made. We were so lucky. It only took us a year to sell and we broke even. Um, but it certainly, it, it wasn't a part of the financial plan. <laughs> we were hoping we were going to make 20 grand and have a, a more substantial down payment and be able to find really what we wanted. So my parents were awesome. We finally, we took the offer that we got after a year of waiting with now a one-year-old. And my parents said, move in with us for a little while while you wait and find what you want. Um, because we just couldn't find anything that was in the area and had the, the space that we needed. So we did, I moved my, I moved my husband and my son into my parents' house. <laughs> my son took over my former bedroom. We had my sisters and we stayed there for a while. Um, I conceived my daughter <laughs> in, in my parents' house. So, wow. uh, so that was, so that put the, the, the pressure <laughs> on finding a place and we both kind of got to the point where really what we wanted were three bedrooms, um, two bathrooms and a garage in a great district like Wissahickon and my neighborhood, my parents' neighborhood was that. So I walked around and put flyers in mailboxes and said, hi, remember me? I'm Kim Clauder, Kim Kosh. You know, I was, I lived at the bottom of Gillen. Um, we're looking to buy, we have nothing to sell. I had three calls in two days of wow. people wanting to sell. So we were really lucky. We didn't need to use a realtor, uh, and, and bought. And my husband was sweet. It's my mom's favorite story. He asked my parents permission if we could live in their neighborhood because he didn't want them to feel like we were invading them. But you know, when you're a Grammy and a pop-up, I guess you're pretty happy when your grandkids are in the neighborhood. So it was great for them. Um, they've been able to learn their bike riding and gain independence by going down the street to hang out with their grandparents, you know, and I could let them go without needing to be hovering over them because it was just down the street. And if I was standing on the driveway up the hill and my parents are down the hill, 
they can go. And what a cool dynamic was- to have like with family. Oh, you know, it's been a lifesaver. Um, you know, it's it's my husband's in-laws, so it's not necessarily always the world's easiest thing to live super close. Mm-hmm. But we all, both try to be very respectful of each other's space. And having them close is such a blessing because my husband works so many hours. He works 80 hours a week. Um, he's often away late in the night. I work full time you know, we're busy people and I can't necessarily get everybody where they need to be or what happens if there's a bad snowstorm. And my, my work is a good 45 minutes to an hour away. If there's a snowstorm and I'm caught, what am I going to do about getting them off the bus? They've come to our aid more times than I can say. And my mom's just a machine. She retired in February. So when we were debating what to do about this school year, she said, I got it. And she's taken over full responsibility of running the virtual schooling for our kids. So we can keep them safe and I can keep my parents safe because we can still see them, but we're not interacting really with other people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we, (laughs) we see people this way, but we are taking, we take the quarantine pretty seriously and we've been staying home. So we're in a pod with my parents and I don't know how we would be making it through if I didn't have my mom and my dad able to pitch in. Timing is so interesting, huh? That this, I mean, the fact that she retired literally a month before this all started happening. And then the fact that she's, you know, that you moved, that you're, that you're in the area. That's so weird over the last, the last bunch of months, how this has all played out for you. It's almost like you planned it. (laughs) <laughs> it It is. You know, I have to say, you know, everybody has struggles in their lives. I've certainly have my bumps and bruises, but I think, I think certainly looking in from the outside, I've got a charmed life. I'm lucky. Things work out well. You know, yeah, there's hard work, there's grit, there's pitfalls, but for the most part, we're able to do just fine. Mm. Uh, so, you know, my mom from Shady Grove, but she's actually not a teacher. She was, really? she worked in Mrs. Farrell's class. Okay. Mrs. Farrow at the time was teaching uh, special ed mm-hmm. and my mom was her aide. So she worked with Mrs. Farrell until we were in 10th grade. Mm. And then she moved on. She became an activities director at uh, one of the ACTS retirement communities. Okay. And then, then took over as director of sales. So she was, um, she was that for a long time selling the apartments to residents and just retired from that. But yeah, I remember um, it's it's funny because I don't know if I was looking through your through your Facebook, um, but I de- like I started seeing pictures of your mom and I was like, oh my God, Mrs. Clotter, of course. And like in my, and I can't place where it was, right? But in my head, it was like in the library, just somewhere where I would always see your mom. And it was like, I don't even know. I mean, I'm sure I did, but it's one of those things where I don't think I ever made the connection between the two of you. Oh, I mean, I probably did. Right. You guys look so much alike, but I I think it had been so long (laughs) since like I've won since I've seen you since I've seen your mom to think of you guys both at the same time and like, oh, that's the actual relation. There's a Kim Clotter, but then there's also a Mrs. Clotter from the exact same school district that looked pretty similar. There you go. Yep. Yeah, that's my mom. She's my bestie. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) She's she's awesome. Um, but yeah, no, she worked with Mrs. Farrell for forever. My mom stayed at home with my sister and I. And then I think when I was in second grade, she became one of the recess ladies at Shady. 
and then had the option of taking the job as a as what we call an EA, an educational assistant mm. um, with Mrs. Farrell. And that was awesome because I was in Mrs. Grable's class in third and their rooms were right next to each other and they had a door between them. Yeah. So my mom could peek through the window at me and I could peek back. And it was also great because if I ever forgot anything, mom was there. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you forget to get the test signed, I could run down the hall. So I really had the out. It was good. So you started at Shady Grove. Um, you didn't? No. So I actually went to Bluebell for my kindergarten year. Really? And that's where I met my Wissahickon School District bestie, Stacey Lenz. Because Bluebell Whoa. was the only place that you could go if you wanted to do half-day kindergarten. Whoa, so, you said so many things to blow my mind right now. <laughs> Uh-oh, where, which one? So, uh, so you so you did you did half day kindergarten at Bluebell. Was that with Stacy? Yeah. Okay, so I mean full disclosure, Stacy has deemed me as her arch nemesis. Like Ooh, I didn't yeah. know this. Oh yeah, I'm like her arch nemesis from like elementary school. So the fact that you knew Stacy from elementary school is like because I knew her from Madison Avenue. Yes. And you, so you knew her before that. Well, now I feel like I don't know my friend so well because I don't think I ever had any idea that you were her arch nemesis. Oh, yeah. It's an old story. She likes to tell about how I broke her arm in third grade. I knocked her off the jungle gym and, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm really a bad friend. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't think it's anything that she talked about too often until I accidentally went out with one of her best friends uh, in like adult life in our in our 30s. And uh, that was like a, so we got a nice little rehash of like, oh, my gosh, like it's not negative now. It's somewhat funny. Oh, good. But- yeah, yeah. It's just more like, oh, wow, you're dating Brad. Yeah, he's my arch nemesis. He broke my fucking arm. <laughs> <laughs> so she's forgiven you. She's forgiven me. Not enough That's to do the good. podcast yet, though. Oh, did you I, ask? I asked her. She told me to wait for season two, which we're on now. So we'll have yeah. to <laughs> Well, there you go. You should should try her again. I put it in the atmosphere now, Stacey. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. So you did half-day kindergarten at Bluebell. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I do kind of remember hearing about this after the fact. Um, I'd never really heard about it prior to that, though. What was that like? Do you remember it? I, I'm I'm a nerd, so I do. <laughs> Good, I we need Banks. that. <laughs> she, she was the uh, half-day kindergarten teacher. My sister had had her, so I knew her before. Who was it? Mrs. Banks, Maria Banks. Okay. And this, this is how nerdy I am. I don't know if I have it handy. I still have and use the bookmark that she gave me. Wow. And in, in kindergarten at the end of the year. So wow. So we're talking, okay, this is gonna put me in a mindset of we're talking super school nerd here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's I'll be honest, that is kind of what I remember, but the twist is that I remember you so much, or in addition, as a music nerd. As a as the chorus <laughs> nerd, right? Yep. There's few people in my life that I went through like every phase of music with, as from mm-hmm. chorus and select chorus, and and then eventually to the musicals. Once we were in high school, but um, always you and yeah, always <laughs> you and I were were in the music program singing. Yes. 
So yeah, that was, that was relief, right? I mean, that made life better. <laughs> That's the part I think that I miss most about being old and a grown up is, you know, what, what release is there? I joined a church choir for a while, but mm. I had to give that up when I got involved in politics because of, you know, when things were, um, and that wasn't the same. I mean, it was fun. It, it really, it helped, but it wasn't the same. Um, but when you're a full-time teacher, full-time mom, where do you sing? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. So yeah, but, you know, those were good times for us. <laughs> I've uh, I've lost it a bit, but I definitely have the exact same feelings where I start like Googling adult adult choir, adult chorus, Philadelphia. Like, where could I go to? You know, there's a there's a music school or something like down the street, and I always wonder like, do they have grownups there? Maybe I should just like pick up guitar and then I could sing and play and do both at the same time. Or, but I, I haven't pushed myself to do it. But it's something I definitely miss, and especially when I'm trying to hit notes that I used to be able to hit, and I lose it. I've lost oh, yeah. it a bit, Kim. <laughs> I know, me too. I'm with you. Like, w- like I thought about doing stuff with Act Two Playhouse and Ambler briefly, but you know, that was before I had kids. And even then, I was I directed the musicals at the school where I was teaching. And you, you just don't. There isn't enough time in the day. Yeah. And it's an actors' equity theater. So you'd need an equity card and I'm not that good. I'm not good at all. Really. <laughs> like I, no, I don't belong getting my equity card for any reason. So that's not going to work. That's so funny to hear you say that because I definitely, um, you know, we talk about like, you know, the cool kids and the hierarchy of social structure um, a lot of times on the podcast, but something I haven't really had a chance to talk to people about is kind of like the hierarchy of, I don't know, the arts program uh, musicals. And I think that you were definitely like one of the most recognizable faces in the drama musical program. And I think just if you were to extrapolate that analogy out or across the board, one would assume that like, you know, if if you were an athlete, I would go, so at what point did you realize that you were good? Or did you want to go to college to do this? Or, you know, I did, I wanted to go to college for theater originally. So I, I would definitely have put that. Yeah. I would have put that in your card. So it's interesting to say to hear you say now, 20 years later, that you're not that good. Well, I mean, I was thinking about this because I, I wondered if you and I talk about music and theater. And I think that what I like, it was fun. It was fun for me. Um, I do. I, you know, I think I'm better than the people that show up on American Idol and think that they're so awesome and sound like it's cat scratching the windows. <laughs> like I, I understand I can carry a tune. I also understand that the dreams that I had about going off to Broadway or becoming a singer. And I think I understood this then those were dreams. Those were things that, Oh my gosh, wouldn't that be so amazing. Mm-hmm. And I loved performing and I loved doing it, but I certainly knew that there were people who were far better than me. Um, that, that were more comfortable on the stage than I was. I loved being there, but I was really preoccupied with what people thought about me. And so I was less willing to take risks, I think, especially on the stage. You know, I, it was good if I, if I knew what I was going to do and I was going to play that part, it was good for me to be in that box. Um, but I think especially in college, when I continued to pursue theater and musical theater, and I did, I minored in theater at, in college, I I recognized, you know, I have my box 
And it was clear that I was a better director than I was performer. And I was a better director because I could see and help and encourage people to take risks better than I was able to personally execute that. Mm. Um, So I, I found directing really satisfying when I had the opportunity to do it. And what's funny is then in practice and rehearsal as the director, I found myself more willing to take risks. You know, maybe as we get older, we just become more okay with who we are. And and I guess that's where I am. I am totally cool with where I am and who I am. I love to sing. I sing all the time. My poor kids sing with me. My daughter, doesn't stop singing. She, there was a Higgin, obviously she had Mrs. Reckner. And so did my son for a while. She just retired two years ago. Um, (laughs) uh, We'll circle back to that. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It's on my, it's on my agenda here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, singing is certainly a part, but I, and I, I think I'm, I'm good but I don't think I'm the best. I was recently razzing the county commissioner, uh, Ken Lawrence, I'm friendly with him. And he was holding a fundraiser just last week. And it's difficult to hold political fundraisers these days because usually you get together and it's a cocktail party and people are interacting and it's kind of boring to do that on Zoom. So we've been doing a lot of quizzo trivia night kinds yeah. of things, but then everybody's doing a quizzo trivia night. So he was trying to shake it up and I'll give him credit for that. He did a Monco's Got Talent and he invited different state reps who have musical talent to perform and then be judged. I think Fetterman was one of the judges and wow. um, and whatnot. And I was, I've been razzing him for weeks. What, you're going to do this and you're not going to include me? And I so would have done it. And I don't think I necessarily would have won, but I would have because I feel confident enough that I wouldn't make a fool of myself. Yeah. Um, but I, I have no grand hopes that I'd be picked up <laughs> by some record label. Sure, sure. Um, Simon Cowell's not. Yeah, no. And I've, I've done it in work. So I used to teach at one of the middle schools in my district and they did a Lenape Idol competition and decided to do it with some staff too. And I performed and I won. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, back to what you asked, you know, did me to say, am I good? I'm fine. Mm. I'm good enough, but I'm not going to record a record and I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I, I think I really was then too. It would have been a nice dream. When you were, when you were coming up, were you always into art? music, that kind of, you know, that world. I mean, it's it's rare. I mean, I don't know if it's rare. What do I know? But I guess I haven't come across with such a a creative mind or arts mind, arts oriented mind and such an academic mind. I haven't had that conversation. So knowing that, you know, both were such a big part for you, um, I guess as you were starting out and going from, I mean, you started at Bluebell, but then you went to Shady Grove. Is that? Yeah, first grade was Shady Grove. As you're, as you're a kid then, you know, were you always interested in music? Were you, um, you know, Paige talked about liking school in, you know, Shady Grove era, especially like studying, like doing work, just generally was something she liked doing. Was this a part of you on both sides? Definitely. Um, but I guess that question of, do I like school is, is an, it, it, it's a, it's a mucky one. It's not an easy yes or no kind of answer. 
Um, did I like learning? Did I like teacher pleasing? Did I like the hard work and the, the process of developing new ideas and feeling accomplished? Absolutely. I never missed a homework assignment. Those things were really important to me. I always read the books. I always did those things that we were supposed to do. I wanted to be in the top programs. Not being in the gifted program was like the most soul crushing thing to me in elementary school, mm-hmm. especially given that I had a sister uh, who was in the gifted program and she, uh, she and and I wanted to live up to those things. And, you know, that was difficult. My sister was really good at a lot of stuff. And so I needed to be really good at a lot of those things, too. But then you're always second when you're the youngest sibling. So that was that was tough between us and for me. And she was in the gifted program and I wasn't. So, yeah, I, school was super important academically. Music and art was too. My parents had me in ballet when I was four. I danced through middle school. I was a figure skater, not for the athletics, but because of the beauty and the music of it. And I enjoyed it. I mean, my elementary school friends will remember my diehard Nancy Kerrigan days. (laughs) I was going to say, you know, I felt like growing up, maybe because I'm younger and I spend way less time with my mom. I just don't hear about it anymore. But I remember in that age, you know, especially the Olympics, but, you know, the 93, 92 to really like 91 to like 96 era of like those Olympics, um, you know, the Nancy Kerrigan's, of course, Tanya Harding. But, you know, that was Stacy in my Halloween costume in sixth grade. I went as Nancy Kerrigan and she went as Tanya Harding and she had like really bad makeup and a pink boa you know, feather boa. And uh, she, she took her baseball bat and put a sticker on it that said, go for the gold or steal it. Like, <laughs> Well, you know, like figure skaters were like, you know, stars. Katarina was a Katarina wit, right? Yes. Right. Yeah. I have Christina a cousin. Gucci. Yeah. I had a cousin that was like named after Oksana Bayul, right? No, <laughs> but like we knew these names. It like Absolutely. skating was huge when we were growing yeah. up. Um, so yeah, I took you, it to the extreme nerdy level, though. <laughs> how do you get in? I mean, how do you get into that, though? Where do you? I never heard of that in this area. Where, do you even like so like, you know, hockey wasn't even a thing. It was a hicken in our school district. Kids, yeah. once they got to high school, were leaving and going to private schools so that they could play so they could play ice hockey. So with ice sports, I was always so completely like removed from that reality outside of just stuff you saw on like Mighty Ducks. But were you going like to skate and and train and so I didn't start figure skating until I was in fifth grade and it was only because again this was a passion because of my my excitement over Nancy Kerrigan and I I was into ballet I did um, my sister and I our ballet school was connected with the Pennsylvania Ballet in Philadelphia so in third fourth and fifth grade I danced at the Academy of Music in the Nutcracker and that was my first paycheck was from the Pennsylvania Ballet. Um, again, I wasn't super good, but I really loved performing and, and I was graceful. I just wasn't always good at remembering the steps mm. so I could sell it. <laughs> but I wasn't necessarily good at it. Um, but dance and, and that kind of art was very much who I was. And so figure skating was a natural merge mm. because it, it's the same kind of grace and dance to the music. 
Um, so I used to dance at the Wissahickon Skating Club down in Chestnut Hill. And my grandfather would pick me up after school and drive me over to the rink in middle school. And I'd go and I'd practice. And then I, I had a coach and I paid for my own coach. So I would babysit and, and I'd pay. My parents would pay for my ice time and my membership, which was really pricey. Yeah. Um, but I had to come up with the money for my lessons. And, wow. and I was determined. So I did it. Uh, but that was another, I mean, it was a weird thing to take up as a middle school kid, because, you know, our bodies are changing and we're weird. And my center of balance, like, you know, my center of balance was changing. Sure. And all, all of the young ladies who were at the same level as I was were like four or five years younger than me. So in any kind of dance that I was doing with the club, I was like the giant, awkward, gawky one. And they were all the cute little third graders. The <laughs> Yeah. No, I didn't fit. <laughs> so I, I gave it up because I had broken. So I broke my elbow in seventh grade. Then I did the same thing to the other elbow in eighth grade. And I didn't do that, I, did I? No, you didn't. You're good. I did it ice skating. I fell and cracked the one down the center and then did the same thing. In eighth grade. But then ninth grade, the summer before ninth grade, I ran cross country and I broke my foot. And I was just done at that point with figure skating. So that ended, ended my briefs. I know exactly what you mean. Like I did modeling, right? So in like- I didn't know this. Oh yeah, yeah. So I was a childhood model from like 10, 11, 12, 13. Um, more, I wanted to get more into acting. I was much more into the acting aspect. But what happened was, you know, when when I first started, I think, you know, especially being biracial is a very unique look. Um, but I was into like show businessy type things. And and it was at that point where my mom was like, you know, are you interested in doing this? It's this or like go to Hebrew school or you can keep going with sports. And I wasn't into like I wasn't really that into sports to want to keep doing. And I was like, oh, I can stop playing sports. I can stop getting hit with baseballs. Yes. So I'd go down to the city. Yeah. So not far from, you know, where you were doing, but I was going down to John Robert Powers at like uh, 16th and Spruce every weekend and doing modeling classes. um, And then eventually was doing like pageants and runway stuff in New York. Me and Nicole Burrell, if you remember Nicole Burrell. Yeah. um, We were, yeah, we were both modeling together. Um, But I was, again, much more interested in like the acting aspect. But as you get older, like you have to do the runway stuff, right? But as you're getting older, you have to kind of do all the things to get yourself to the acting place. Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, now you get to read lines and do this because you did the other categories. But as I'm turning 11, 12, 13, and puberty starts, and I've now I've now busted over 100 pounds, and I'm doing swimsuit competitions with all my baby fat, it's <laughs> like, and I'm still with these kids who are seven, and they look like they're seven years old, even though they're 14, it yeah. was just like, it was ridiculous. And, that, and I've got like a, a little mustache and I've got all this hair and they're just like, he looks like he's 15. <laughs> and they could, yeah. you, can't, you can't cast them as a preteen. And I just got very discouraged by the, you know, just by the back and forth, the hustle bustle, come to New York, audition for five minutes, go back home. Um, I wanted Wait, to be, a, yeah, I wanted to be a normal kid. Um, yeah. So I did it for like a, a good, you know, a good three, four years, I think. And uh, but slimmer, I mean, I didn't have injuries, but it just kind of became a thing that the life that you have to have as a teenager wasn't really adaptable to this unless you're going to go all in on child acting. Yep. Which you yeah. don't really do from Philadelphia. 
no. You got to move to LA to do stuff like you that. You do. You have to move. I guess you could go move in with uh, what Mark Pinchotti producing. <laughs> Bold and the beautiful. Bold and the beautiful uh-huh. in LA. There uh-huh. you go. Go do that. So now I I hear you. Was that like your interest? I, I'm always curious. Like before we get into like middle school and high school, where I felt like the, the social clicks really start to happen. Did you have other friends outside of Stacy, or did you have friends like in your area where you were growing up that you were friends with? Sure. Um, yeah, definitely had other friends other than Stacy. She was who I would have considered my best friend through through grade school. And then Kathy Beezer moved into the district and sort of joined our crew and Carrie McCormick. So we were a group of four uh, all the way through elementary school and middle and and some of high school. And then we we started to kind of make our own paths. Um, though, uh, without COVID, uh, we do try to get together, you know, once a year, catch up, see what's going on with each other, um, which is fun, Yeah. but, but not nearly to the extent that we were. So they were my good friends and I, I certainly had others. Um, but I think, you know, when I said the question of do I, did I like school or not? It gets, it gets mucky because I liked school, but I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, and I had friends, Karen Applebaum was one of my good friends. Uh, and second grade, I was friendly with April Haas and, you know, different friends, different years. But I felt like I was always the one that was on the outskirts of whatever group it was. So I was not anybody's first and favorite friend. I was the third or fourth or fifth. And the first and second friend of my friend may be very willing to make fun of me and tease me. Wow. And so then I was really embarrassed and uncomfortable. And I didn't help myself because I was such a nerd. Um, and I was a nerd in the way I dressed. I mean, I was, I wasn't willing, I didn't want to grow up as fast as everybody did. Like I look at my nine-year-old and she wants to be 18 tomorrow. And I just want her to stop. Um, but I was really happy to play with my dolls. I was delighted to get American Girl dolls as a fifth grader. I didn't want to outgrow that part of my life. Mm. At the same time, I wanted to dress like an old lady. And <laughs> and I would have been great in, well, I was great in my turtleneck shirts and my sweaters and no lies. My mom definitely wears a sweater that I bought in fifth grade and she still wears it <laughs> because like I was ready to be an eighties an businesswoman and dress like that then. So my clothes didn't fit in. I was nerdy. I was too little. I was too young. I didn't want to, to act more grown up than I was. Um, and I got picked on. Uh, and I got picked on a lot for what I wore. At least that was my perception. And people would make comments or make looks, or I never felt like I had the right clothes. And we didn't shop at the right stores. My parents were really young. They were high school sweethearts. They got married at 22. They had my sister at 23, me at 25. We shopped at Kmart. We shopped JCPenney's. We shopped Sears. And that's what we could afford. My sneakers weren't Nikes. We went to Fava in Airport Square by the Montgomery Mall. Um, that's where we got stuff. And I was comfortable with that, but I knew that I was looked down on. So I think I, I, you know, I tell my students, I think I'm still kind of funny from time to time about clothes. 
that I'm very aware of how I'm dressed and how I present myself all the time. And I was blown away two years ago when this, the high school students voted me best dressed. I was like, what? What is this? Really? Like, you, you think that? Because <laughs> it's, it's been a preoccupation for me for a really long time. And I think I was preoccupied with that for my own kids, that, that they're dressed right. And I've had to come to terms with allowing them to wear polka dots and stripes and whatever crazy thing they want to wear, because that's important for them to figure out and do. But that was hard for me to let go between like kindergarten and second grade, that they needed the, the freedom to do it because I was so worried that they'd feel the way I felt. That's so, wow. Um, you said so many things that's just felt so similar to, to my situation, but you know, I, I, I'm incredibly self-aware to feel like you were like the third friend. Um, that's, you know, that's like such a true feeling that you, I, I kind of, I guess I, I forgot, like when you know that you're friends with someone, but you know that you're not their first choice and then kind of like the, the kid gang up of, oh, oh yeah. we're going to, we're going to make fun of him or we're going to make fun of her. And, oh yeah, I'm going to do that too. And then you look at your friend like, Hey, we're, we're friends. What are you doing? It's like, well, yeah, but part of our friendship is knocking you when we're to, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you say it out, when I say it out loud, it feels like it's full house plot with like Stephanie and and her friend or, you know what I mean? And it's like, oh, but she's never liked that when we're in school. But yeah, that is definitely like a thing that I felt. And I, and I think affected my way of what our friends, I think I would have these, these slights through middle school, really, where I was like, I thought we're kind of friends, but like, it doesn't seem doesn't seem true all the time. And then yeah. you just, I, I think I, I would start distancing myself from those friendships. And then to where I just end up with like Ray and Scott and, and the people that I like exclusively were kind of, you know, had this relationship with and didn't really allow outside this because I, I did feel weird about off comments that would come that weren't true to the relationship that we would have privately. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you're better than me then because I really had a hard time with that through, through the end of high school was, was really the, that was how I felt about most of my friends. And there are very few people from high school that I keep in good touch with. Um, and I think partly because of that, that I got to a point where I realized that this wasn't a, what a real friendship was and it was time to cut the fat, but I don't think I got there until I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then I felt that way because as, as we said, you know, my, my interest outside of doing well in school at college was theater and Bucknell's not a huge school uh, where I went. So the kids that were in theater, we were a really close knit group, but I knew I wasn't everybody's favorite in there same way, you know, and I got picked on and teased there too. And I was willing to accept that I think mm-hmm. at that point and know who my good friends were in college. And, and so it was better. Um, but all the way through, you know, I, I really felt that way. It's taken time to cultivate really good standing friendships and not feel like the third wheel or the fourth wheel or the person who needs to prove themselves that I, I belong. I'm, I can fit in. I'm good enough. So I liked school, but I didn't like the way that I always felt in school. I'm, I got, I mean, I, that's a feeling I haven't. I haven't thought of or like had reintroduced to me 
probably you know like a really long time i really have kind of forgotten about that aspect and it really sucked you're right <laughs> that's it's exactly really, the word i was thinking of it sucks it, it just, just sucks you know i felt um i think i felt like for me like i was i was failing as a a cool person or you know it's like oh i don't know it we seemed cool, you know, yesterday and, and now I'm not, you know, they don't want to sit with me at the table or what did I do? And, and I know I was a very, you know, I was, I was always in go mode, right? I was a theater kid, even when I wasn't yeah. on stage, you know, everything was a, was an act. Everything was a Everything's line. a performance. Yeah. Yep. Everything was a performance, you know, Teaching and, and, is a performance. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. And I don't know. I always felt like, I always felt like that was a cause of, you know, in the most in the most basic way to categorize it, I always felt like that was kind of the blowback socially was, you know, me just being a little too extra or a little bit too aggressive or just loud or making people uncomfortable because I'm repeating something that you probably shouldn't be watching at 12 years old on TV. You should probably be 17 watching this. And people are like, let's get away from this guy. And, and no, like but you, it's a way of selling yourself. It's like, huh, see, I'm worth it. I'm but good. But also, like you, you know, I loved, I loved wrestling figures. I haven't talked about this at all on the on the podcast. So I was a big wrestling fan, and I collected, played with wrestling figures like through elementary school, um, and I want to say probably through eh, probably half of high school, I played with wrestling figures like. Hundreds of them, all the guys, Hogan and the Ultimate oh, Warrior, yeah. and I had the ring and the title belts, and I would, I would hum the music to myself and do the coming to the ring, and like at ten thirty, my mom would have to be like, "Go to bed." Like I was, and I guess I never really thought about. Man, you're bringing up all these memories for me. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> but no, no, these are good. These are awesome. Um, yeah, of like being a little bit out of range age wise, maturity wise, and not really caring. Like, I don't know. I, I can't imagine not wanting to play with these wrestling figures just because people think it's immature. I guess I'm just not hanging with them. You know, my yeah. best friends knew I played with them, but it, it definitely wasn't anything that I could like publicize because it felt oh, no. so out of scope. So you with yeah. the doll, with the American dolls, like that's, mm-hmm. that's exactly what that makes me think of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it felt really conflicting. Like it's, it's immature, but I, I mean, it was also too mature. I wanted, I knew I wanted to be a mom. There was no doubt in my mind that I wanted to be a mom. I don't even recall dating for the sake of dating ever in my life, that that was not what this was about. It was about that I was going to find the man of my dreams and we were going to have children and I was going to be a mom. So my doll playing was immature in the sense of, like other kids were growing out of them and I wasn't, but I was also using that as like training for beyond where everybody else was. I wasn't interested in the boy bands. I wasn't interested in the typical things that high school kids were interested in. I had moved on. I skipped it and was, was ready for motherhood and parenting and real life and business suits and, and doing things. Where did that come from? I don't know. But I, I thank goodness that I have it. I think that that makes me who I am and it's, it's my drive, um, you, know, you know, to, to be successful, to have a goal and to seek it out no matter what. Um, Kathy Beezer actually, not too long ago, she said something to me when we had seen each other. So I guess it's a couple of years now. Uh, but I had said something about, you know, worrying that I was going to feel like a failure, that I hadn't done something right. And she looked at me and she said, Kim, absolutely everything you have ever said you wanted to do, 
you have done. If anybody can pull anything off, it's going to be you. You don't give up on mm. stuff. And that was a, an amazing compliment in a moment that I really needed it to be there. Um, but I have heard similar things then from other friends. If, if somebody's going to get it done, you're going to get it done. Um, you know, who do you give something to? If you need something done, who do you give it to? You give it to the busiest person in the room. And then people look at me, which is flattering. It's overwhelming because <laughs> I often feel like the busiest, craziest person in the room. Uh, but but having a mission, having a plan and executing it, that's been crucial to who I am since I was a kid. I mean, fifth grade, I, we did, well, you had the option of doing the like make a dream house competition. Oh, I don't know about this. Yeah, there was this dream house competition and you could go to the local realtor and pick up the directions and make a dream house and submit it. And my parents are like, she's not going to do this. And I brought it home the directions and I sat there with paper boxes and paints and my other art supplies. And I made my dream house and I entered the competition and I won first place and went on to the next county level of competition in my dream house. Because if you have a goal, and you say you're going to do something, you do it and you execute it. And that's it. It's just, that's a part of the plan. There's no, it's fine if there are bumps and things don't go according to plan, but you're not going to stop. You're going to keep going. So for me, I mean, I had this awesome relationship with my mom. My parents are incredible. My mom is so fabulous. And mom was a stay at home mom. And she was so good at being a mom. I'm so excited that she's watching my kids and helping them for virtual school. My kids have the best of all worlds because I'm not nearly as good of a parent as she was. And now that they have the benefit of her, I'm like, this is going to be the best year ever for my kids' lives. They don't know it. They may be annoyed, but I'm thrilled. <laughs> um, but I wanted that. I wanted, I saw that in her then. I saw how happy we were as a family. I wanted that. So I was ready to find that at eight. <laughs> wow. You know, I think that's, I think that that's probably normal. I think that's why kids play house. Right. Yeah. And originally um, I think it is, you know, interesting just that you, you mentioned like you kind of skipped, not even that you skipped, you just never moved on to kind of pop culture world, I guess in that way. Um, as you're becoming like a teenager, is that a disconnect for you with, with people your own age? I, I talk a lot about like feeling like I was a little bit above my age grade as far as the things I liked to talk about, the things I like to watch, listen to. Um, I was an only child, you know, my dad was a heavy influence. My grandfather was a heavy influence. Um, those were the things that I was much, you know, cursing and, and adult conversations over drinks. Those were the things that I was privy to. Um, outside of just like my immediate friends. So for yeah. you kind of never going into that preteen pop world, I guess. Well, I think that's one of the things that kept me as the third friend, you know, be, because I didn't necessarily fit into those categories and I was fun and nice and good to hang around with, but I wasn't going to be that one. And I, I would agree with you. Like I used to hang out with my parents' friends yeah. when they would have dinner parties. I was welcome. Yeah. Um, my good friends to this from with the exception of one. So Dan Eisen is my daughter's godfather. 
which is which was really one of the most fun conversations I've ever had because I called him and I asked him to be her godfather and I had this whole speech lined up and he's like Kim you know I'm Jewish right <laughs> and I was like no yeah that's not what this is about for me I just kind of forgot to mention that in this conversation for us it was more about extending our family and wanting him to to be a part of it and be an influence in my daughter's life it wasn't religious per se so like it didn't matter to me that he was Jewish I just wanted him in our family but with the exception of Dan who I'm really still very close with my best friend from school is Stephanie Cohen who's two years above us in school my husband's eight years older than I um I've recently made some friends in politics who are my age which is really weird because it's it's one of the first times that I've had friends I have a friend that's younger than me that blew my mind (laughs) because I've never really had many friends that were my age or younger. Yeah. I I was just, I, my friends were older. That was rough in college. Um, I finished in three and a half years, uh, not four. And my last semester with student teaching and all of my friends, really, my, my college boyfriend, he was two years older than I and my good friends, they were a year older than I. So they'd all graduated and I had no one that I was really coming back to my senior year. And then on top of that, being that I was only gonna be there for a semester and I was only student teaching, so I really wasn't on campus. Mm-hmm. That was painfully lonely. Just, yeah. Ugh, I, we also didn't have TV at Bucknell. So I had oh. a VHS player and I used to go to the library and rent VHSs and DVDs and watch them in my room while I graded papers and oh. drive home to visit the boyfriend on, oh. on the weekends because there was nothing oh. for me left there. And I couldn't participate in theater and I couldn't participate in any of the singing because it was not possible to be a part of those things while student so, teaching. So then what were you into? I mean, I, I know you have these activities that you're yeah. doing, you know, extracurricular wise, but just as a kid, what would your, did you have free time? What would you do like at home after school or on, if you had like a, a Sunday free, how would you spend your time? Playing. I mean, I would see friends just cause I wasn't the first friend didn't mean we weren't getting together. Like Stacy and I used to do TGIF together throughout elementary school. Remember TGIF yeah. programming used to go over to her house or mine and we'd pop popcorn, pop secret. And the best was when they had the mystery color pop secret. Oh, now, yeah. Because you didn't know what color it was going to be. And that was the best. So we'd watch the lineup either at her house or mine. Her mom had this basket and she'd put a paper towel in it. And then the, the napkin or paper towel would get all like buttery. buttery. Oh, it was great. Yeah. So we'd do that. Um, I mean, Carrie lived, Carrie McCormick lived in the neighborhood over from me. I had neighborhood friends. Um, Elaine Vatisse lived in my neighborhood. Lauren Rossi, who wound up going to GA uh, in high school. She was in my neighborhood. We would play. My sister and I would play. I mean, we weren't, we were sisters and we argued and things, but we would play and get together. So I would certainly see friends and be involved in stuff and spend time with my family. Mm -hmm. We did stuff together. Um, my mom was home. My dad did worked in nine to five. He's an engineer and he'd get home and we'd do things. Mm. So play games, you know, go on little adventures and do family stuff. Yeah. So. I don't know if that's like irregular, um, but you're probably the first person to talk about such a, you know, 
a close family community just like within the house? I don't know if it's irregular either. I think my parents' marriage is irregular. Mm. I've never met two people more in love than my mom and dad. Um, Crazy in love with each other. And my dad's parents were the same. My dad's parents, my grandmother was 14 when she started dating my grandfather. They got married the day after she graduated from high school. Um, They had kids young. They were in their 40s when I was a little kid. So, they, I mean, I, I came from a long line of high school sweethearts, high school sweethearts, high school sweethearts that really, really loved each other. Yeah. I mean, my dad used to get home from work and scoop, and before he said hello to anybody, he'd scoop my mom up into a, like, 1945. I, and, you know, like, that, that was life. And there was no, there was no hiding of their feelings for each other. In, in any way. I mean, there was probably way too much PDA. Stacey used to talk about coming over to my house and my parents had glasses of red wine and <laughs> like sat around being together and being with each other. Like they, they were just really in love and are really in love. Um, and that was, that was amazing. I do think that that caused me some stress because I didn't understand that my parents actually did fight until I was an adult married myself. And so when things, when I would feel badly in a relationship, my assumption was this is bad. I need to leave. I didn't have much experience with, oh, you can work this out. Things can be okay. Mm -hmm. You can argue, you can disagree. It can feel really nasty and terrible, but it doesn't mean that you don't love each other and this isn't worth saving. Um, And that took me a long time to learn because I didn't see it. Yeah. But I don't think I would trade what I had for all the tea in China. My family, I mean, they love each other and they show up. If you need something, they show up. And I couldn't be luckier. That's awesome. When you're, um, as you're into middle school then um, and, and transitioning into high school for you then socially, um, are you now, I mean, you, you kind of kept the same group of friends, you said, but, and I know like, as high school went on, then you said you guys kind of started going your own way. But just for you, like as a person, what kind of person are you becoming as you're going eighth grade into ninth grade? I mean, for me, I always had a hard time with the pods, right? With the, with the pods, yeah. Because oh. I didn't I didn't have classes with friends. Yeah. Um, so for me, every year in middle school was like a crapshoot of what was going to happen socially, whether it's like, am I in classes with enemies? Am I in classes with like people who I kind of, can talk to people I could at least eat lunch with. That was me like every, every single year, really even through high school. Um, so for you, and you're so aware of like this third friend thing and, and you're a nerd and, you know, I'm just curious, just what kind of a person, how are you feeling as, as you've now you're becoming a teenager? So I want to echo like lunch was really the worst time in the world. Wasn't it? I mean, I, I think about, I taught middle school for my first 10 years as a professional person. And I used to empathize with the kids. I mean, if you buy your lunch and you're later in line, you've got to be panicked because what happens if all the seats are taken and there's no place for you to be. But if you bring your lunch and your friends are buying and you sit down at a table alone, who's going to sit with you first of all, and how's that going to damage things? But second of all, what if they don't sit with you? The stress, 
that I had over lunch daily, even through high school, I think I felt that way, you know, like you had to figure out who you were going to sit with, with lunch at lunch and like then confirm it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know, I still feel that way with teacher in services and we actually get to see each other and have lunch. Like I need to arrange my lunch plans <laughs> before I get there. <laughs> Otherwise I'm, I'm going to be alone. Yes. So I want to make sure that I know who I'm going to be with. It's, it's rough. It's really rough. Um, I think, I think that my friend groups were always really fluid. I had a few that were consistently my friends, Katie or Stacy, Kathy, Carrie, Kimmy, Stacey, Kathy, Kimmy, Carrie. That was, you know, that, that was the crew for a while. Um, but I also had other good friends, but they changed with the year. They changed with the pod because it had to be fluid. It wasn't never, it was never going to be that I was somebody's bestie no matter what. So, um, you know, I did the Japanese program in middle school and then there was that kind of crew of kids that were involved in that. And that was sort of then my lump for a little. What so is like, that? So I, I took Japanese. Did you go oh, to Japan? I did go to Japan. I was the first group to go. So that was Ellen Opplinger and Jenny Martin, um, Vincent, uh, Giancarlo Sadati, yep. Scott Beck, yeah, okay. Dan, Dan Eisen. Um, I'm uh, Molly Foose. Oh, okay. Uh, so like we had a friendship, but even within that, like I, I knew I wasn't everybody's favorite. <laughs> I wasn't anyone's favorite. Um, so, so I would like find a crew and that would be fine for a year. And then I'd need to find a new crew. And I was okay with that, but it does kind of leave you feeling like, hmm, <laughs> He really likes me, you know. Who are you going to be with? Did you? Ever- I was always when it came to pods. I was always more worried about was I going to be in the good pod or not. What was the good pod to you? In sixth grade, the good pod was a pod with okay. Mr. D and Mr. G. Right. Like the best kids were in that pod is what I thought, and they were the hardest teachers. And like you, you were good if you got into those. No, what do you mean? Is the what do you mean the best kids academically? Yeah. Popul- okay. No, academically, at least my perspective was that was the pod to be in if you were a smart kid. Okay. Um, and I was in Mr. D's class, so that made me feel good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they picked on kids a lot, and they did it in a playful way. The Mr. And Mr. Goldberg was the you got burnt guy and yep. Del Muto. Yeah, and that was funny. and they were the the mat ball guys. Like they'd take us down to play mat ball. Mm. And I'm not very coordinated. <laughs> as I said, I'm graceful as a ballerina, but not necessarily getting the feet in the right places. So mat ball was another one of my biggest stresses in middle school because I knew I was gonna get picked last. And rightfully so, because I sucked. <laughs> Is it, it's, my mind is blown just to all the anxieties and insecurities of similarities that you and I had, you know, by that point, I felt like the fat kid who wasn't, oh. who wasn't good at sports and had not much interest. So I just be kind of like, whatever you're going to, and then it's like, Oh, I'll pick Corbett. And it's second to last. And I'm thinking like, how much could I suck a kickball? It's just hitting it with your foot. Like, yeah, but, but like I would miss, I would get my, I don't know about you. I would get myself so worked up yeah. and nervous inside that I was going to embarrass myself, but then I would like kick the top of it and it would spin. 
that would like be, that. Yeah, that would, I, the anxiety of like seeing it coming. You're all in line and you, it, it oh, starts yeah. with a popularity thing. In your head, you're going, oh, I could kick better than that kid. I'm better than that kid. I know it's up better than better than her. Why are they picking her? Like, and then it's like you and two other people, and you're just like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm I'm with this person, and we're the last two. And now when you actually get, it's like they have to pick you, right? All right, fine, you're on our team. And then yeah. when you're up and you're like the last one to bat because it goes in order of how you were picked, you're the last one to kick. And now oh, you're yeah. thinking, well, now I can't fuck this up. <laughs> they all they're all assuming me to suck i've got to nail this thing but you try yeah. too hard and you whiff yeah. i'm trying to hit it out i'm trying to hit it into the bleachers up above into the stands and oh yeah and i just like whiff and my leg and my whole body swings with it and it's like corbett i know and then you understand why you're picked last again next time yes. it's funny that you say that like the, the other kids that are with you you know that they're the the bad ones too, or like the really nerdy kids. I think that's why your interview with Barclay, Neil really touched me because I remember, I don't think I ever interacted with her. And I think that that was very intentional on my part because I knew I was nerdy and I knew that she was probably considered more of a nerd than me. So associating myself with her would have been further suicide. Mm. And so I just dodged that. And as an adult who worries a lot about people's feelings and, and what that must have been like, my gosh, must have, what that must have been like for her um, and how mean of me to cognitively have made the decision not to be mean, but to refuse to associate because of my own selfish fears. I mean, I was a kid and kids are like that mm -hmm. and kids are selfish and they're supposed to be, that's where we are developmentally. So, okay. Um, but I'm disappointed in myself. I hope that my kids can do better. I think my son will do better. I hope my daughter will do better than I did. It's funny for everything you say, I've got a, a meism too. It's like, uh, I think about like, you know, interviewing Mike Clyburn and JP and who are like the band nerds, right? And I think I had a complex because I was always so confrontational with people that I felt like it stuck around. So it got to a point where I definitely felt bullied by cooler kids because, um, yeah, because I, I was, and, and I probably at times instigated, but once you start poking, now you're, you're kind of fair game to, for an interaction anytime. But I think I compensated with that by trying to find people I viewed mm -hmm. as socially under me, right? I looked at, yeah. and and this, and, and you talk about like now when you think about yourself then and like how embarrassed you are by that. When I look at myself, I think of like how uncool, not only was I then, but how uncool I am now. And I have, you know, just good friends that are like, you're able to laugh about just stupid stuff about yourself. To where I just go like, wow, I can't imagine thinking I'm going to find someone that I think is under me and make them feel like shit because someone that I thought was up here is making me feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's messy. You know, when we start to think about the choices that we've made, we like to be the heroes in our own story. I want to be the hero in my story, uh, but, but we're flawed heroes. And if we're really reflective on it, some of the things that we've done, they're understandable. 
it's understandable, but it doesn't make it any less unkind mm-hmm. that we felt that way. You know, you mentioned Elaine Vitisse, who played um, who played Roosevelt in sixth grade when I did Annie. Oh, so she played FDR um, in the wheelchair and everything. So my question is, where were you? Where <laughs> were you right, in the so musicals? That's a that's a fair question. One I've asked myself. So I didn't do it well. All right. So if you remember, drama club in sixth grade started with the Adams family, and there were Adam's like a hundred kids. Meets the crypt keeper. Yeah, there were like a hundred kids that came out for it. And only like seven get parts, Mm -hmm. right? So I got a part because at the time, I don't know if you remember, I had horrible hair and it was really long and all the way to my hips. So obviously then if you were one of those kids who had long hair, you got to play cousin it. Um, But otherwise I knew that I was not going to be cast. And that was very deflating, which is why I didn't get involved any further than that. And then I forget her name from the B-Pod. Wonderful. Af- Mrs. Who? Mrs. Watson Bay. Yes, Mrs. Watson Bay. I sang the national anthem because in eighth grade, I did cheerleading mm. because my my friends who I was cursory friends with were Jenny Martin and Ellen Opplinger and, uh, oh gosh, names are, <laughs> names are falling Karen. away from me now. Karen uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like the friends of that year, at oh, least. Okay. Were, so they were all cheerleaders. So I, I signed up to be in cheerleading so that I could see my friends. <laughs> so I did cheerleading and I sang the national anthem at the basketball games. And Mrs. Watson Bay or somebody else had me sing it for something. And Mrs. Watson Bay heard me and she asked me to come out and do Dream Girls and be uh, Effie. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it, but I had done cheerleading through the football season and then the basketball season. And I just, I'd had a little bit too much of after school stuff and I didn't feel like I had any more time. And so I didn't do it that year, even though she sort of had opened this window of here will be the part for you, which was really flattering in retrospect. I wish I had, I wish I had done it. Although what an interesting choice. I mean, Dreamgirls is an awesome play and such a great thing to expose kids to. But I don't know, I don't know as a as a teacher, as a director now that I think I would ever make the decision to cast a white person in one of the lead roles of that musical. I think it's so important that it should be people of color. I mean, I appreciate you got to cast who you got to cast in a public school, mm-hmm. but that feels wrong <laughs> in some ways. I don't, Especially I don't know if you agree with sh- me. Well, the I show think- is is like one third about the stealing of black culture by white yeah. artists. And whenever these black artists release songs, literally in the show, a white artist on the other side of the stage is recording like the Michael Bolton, you know, easy rock version, version of the song. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then to cast a white girl who certainly as an eighth grader would not have been able to understand and process the magnitude of taking that part and not 
making it so vanilla. I mean, I would have made it vanilla. I was, I'm a blonde white girl, like (laughs) without much experience, like what I would have done nothing but have been me. Um, So I'm kind of, I regret not having done it, but I'm also kind of glad I didn't because I think um, that would create some inner struggles for me as a scholar of African-American lit. Uh, that was my master's major. As I, uh, I got my master's from Villanova in African-American literature. I think I would really have a hard time with that. I, again, especially because my my master's work was on um, August Wilson's place mm, and awesome. the importance of of what he's doing with double consciousness and um, and and black life and chronicling that experience to to whiten that to whitewash dream girls it would it would be the same thing and I think I'd be really mad at myself retrospectively that I did that. It's that's so true. It was such a weird time, you know, because I came in in Annie, where I was, you know, the biracial guy playing a white bald guy, because I was the only guy. Who was gruff and rough, right? So I was playing Daddy Warbucks and having to like, they didn't make bald wigs for brown kids back in the 90s. Oh, I remember you with the white thing on your head. the bald wig. So like we were trying to like color tone it with like makeup and stuff. And and I had so much hair. We're trying to like pull it over all my hair and like it's ripping. So we're taping it. It was a very difficult but the entire time in middle school, there were just so little boys, yeah. so little kid or men, males, whatever, in the drama program that I came through there with always having women play men parts in the mm-hmm. musicals. And so mm-hmm. when it came time to and Dreamgirls was a mess. You're so lucky because what ended up happening, I'm just going to tell it the way it is, because. It's Did important. it even go off? I don't remember a performance. Yeah, no, it happened. It happened because okay. um, I was James Early and we did all the performances. But so Stephanie Knoll got the part of like of of the of like the Diana Ross character. Uh, okay. Amanda Christian, who was a year below us. Yeah. Got the role of Effie. So Amanda Christian, the, you know, Effie is the is the true singer. Uh, yeah. of, of the group and Stephanie Knoll is is supposed to be like the the looks. Stephanie the Knoll sweet voice with the looks, yes. Right, but Stephanie Knoll couldn't sing even as the sweet voice. Sorry to say, Steph, but this is where we were. It was eighth grade, and yeah. Mrs. Watson May was very much cat, trying to cast seniors. But what ended up happening because she was so unhappy with Stephanie Knoll, she actually casted Danielle Pitcher to play a completely separate role where there would be a curtain on the side of the stage where Danielle Pitcher was singing Stephanie Knoll's parts. She wrote this in where Stephanie Knoll now as a replacement for Effie, the power singer, isn't even really the singer. It's a whole ruse on the entire audience that we're showing that Danielle Pitcher is actually singing the songs for Stephanie Knoll. That's what we ended up doing for Dreamgirls. All, well, yeah, Danielle's, right, Puerto, so Danielle's Puerto Rican, that's so. thematically problematic, too, because you've got the white takeover of Black culture, and now it's being played by white people, and then it's being taken over by a different white person. <laughs> like, why too many they just, layers of nuts. <laughs> yeah, why didn't they just find a Black girl that could sing? <laughs> that would solve the whole problem. But again, yeah. hard in middle school, just no one wanted to do it. No. Why? I, you well, know, she didn't have a great reputation, as I recall. Correct. She was she hard. She was seen as being mean. Yeah. 
She was the scary black woman. She was a scary black woman, like stereotypically. Was that it? Was that why? Yeah, yeah. That's and I knew her. I knew her, you know, pretty well after school for a while. She just, yeah. uh, she's a no nonsense. Many in black culture would probably say that's just, you know, a black mom. She's yeah. a mother. You know, she had two kids that are our age as well. So she was like in it at the same time of coming to school. Yeah. She also had health issues and stuff, which I think could scare kids. Um, it was just a, you know, a, a bad chemistry for a reputation in a, in a town as small as ours. That's really a shame. But she tried, I mean, the, the work that they put in, how hard they tried, the kids that she loved, um, that she, you know, that she attached herself to, um, you know, all probably have really great, great memories, as do I. The people that don't have great memories, for probably good reason, don't have great memories. They probably had some pretty traumatic, tense situations with her. That's really a shame, though. Yeah. You know, that's interesting, as you were talking about her being the Black woman, and therefore that perhaps contributed to what her reputation was. I'm trying to think. And other than Mrs. Banks, my kindergarten teacher, I didn't have a person of color for a teacher at Wissahickon. And we had them. I know them, especially at the high school. But they were usually men um, and involved in athletics. And I feel like taught lower levels of things. And then you've got me questioning more. Gosh, I wonder if that was intentional because there were perhaps more students of color in some of the deemed lower level classes. And then it would provide more of a mentor figure, which I, I get from the district's perspective, but I don't know that that is a helpful choice. It's in, it's something I never thought of, but you know, it's funny because I actually came up, I had, um, you know, I didn't have Mrs. Watson Bay, but having her through drama all that time, I came up um, with four black teachers, kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fourth grade. I had black teachers, black female teachers all those years. Fourth grade was Mrs. Roebuck, where, yeah. um, you know, a lot of people talk about positively, you know, so many people that we went to school with, um, you know, Chris Warren and Kim Devaney and, mm -hmm. and so many people had Mrs. Roebuck that just speak positively, positively, but throughout the years and knowing people in Wissahickon that still teach, I've heard nothing but bad things as far as just instances of, oh, how is Mrs. Roebuck doing? And I, I, you know, I haven't seen her in so long and it's like, oh, well, she's nice, but you know, people are giving her problems with this or this person had a problem with this. And, and I don't think she's in the district anymore, but um, the thing that I always felt when I would have problems with white teachers was that it always felt like a, a, an inability to handle me. Not that I was doing things so horrible, but there was an inability to handle me. And I can only think that in the reverse, the students are having the exact same issue with black teachers because they just aren't having that experience to know how to handle them. I, I, I hear you. I hate that word handle. Like, why are we having to handle each other? Why does a student need to handle a, a teacher? Why does a teacher need to handle a kid? You need to, uh, accept. You need to get to know. You need to empathize with. I. I think I'm not liking that, but I. I get you. I mean, I worry about that. So I teach in Central Bucks, which is a much less diverse school than uh, than we attended, and I specifically I teach at CB East, which is the least diverse of the two high, of the three high schools, 
Um, I think it's like 92% white. Um, and I have never worked in 17 years. I've never worked with a, a black colleague. Um, and we've talked about how the district just really doesn't hire them and, uh, and why. And the district claims it's because people of color don't apply to Central Bucks. And also those who do start teaching in Central Bucks leave within five years. And why is that? Um, and I think that what you're saying is probably very true. Those who decide to take jobs in suburban affluent districts like with the Hicken, like Central Bucks, like many of the ones around us, um, there is a disconnect culturally and as opposed to students and the community maybe rallying to understand, to appreciate, to be enthusiastic about the opportunity to work with someone with a different life experience. Instead, they, they put too much of that onus on the teacher, which must be really hard as a teacher to be the token black teacher in a building. You know, I, oh, I can't imagine how weird that must be, especially when you start talking about diversity. <laughs> like, oh, so everybody's going to stare at that person. That sucks. Yes. I can remember, you know, with my parents, I didn't have like an out because my teacher was being mean. Oh, um, yeah. I think I had one teacher um, that was like my parents were like maybe two teachers like in life were like teachers. Parents were like stepping in like, OK, this is too much. But it it, you know, with Mrs. Roebuck, I had a Mrs. Lawrence, Mrs. Jones, uh, Mrs. Gavin, all prior to that. And it was never like, a, it was like, oh, she's being mean um, because they would call and they would tell my parents, you know, there was commun open communication between the teachers and my parents. So my parents would be like, hey, teacher called. Here's what's going on. What's up? What are you doing? What's And I would try and come up with excuses, all that. But there was no, oh, we're taking your side over your teachers. Sure. And I feel like just, and I wish I got that. <laughs> well, I feel like probably that didn't happen for where people are brushing up. And that's why I say handle, right? I feel like parents probably don't support teachers in a lot of ways. So where, you know, a black teacher maybe culturally handles things differently mm -hmm. because it's just how sometimes black people handle things. I think a white person takes it, a white, young white person can take it as no one's ever talked to me this way. We see it all the time of like, right, how white parents talk to their kids versus how black parents talk to their kids in the supermarket, right? So getting the side eye from your black teacher who's giving you the you know better look, maybe if you've never gotten that, you might feel threatened. She's always telling me that I should know better. And you know what I mean? Like it, it feels weird because you've never had that before. Yeah. That was always my interpretation of what was going on in those worlds. Nevertheless, it's a shame. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate we haven't been able to work ourselves around this problem in the last 20 years. I know. I know. Did you um did you have teachers that in high school that you that you were drawn to that you liked? Oh, sure. Mrs. McLaughlin, um, AP US history. Mm -hmm. She and I still exchange Christmas cards. Wow. Um, we've gotten together for dinner a couple of times. Um Mrs. Patterson, Ann Patterson's mom, oh my gosh, touched my life, touched my heart wow. quite a bit. Mrs. Karanji, I don't know if you remember her. She yeah. was a ninth grade English teacher. Um, so she and I are now friends. And it's funny, we, we have some connections. 
um, one of my campaign running mates went to college with her. So I made him feel really old because he could have been my teacher. Um, but then her kids are now at North Penn High School. And some of my students know her through basketball and will say things like, oh, do you remember Kim Clotter? And she said nice things about me to my students, which is funny. And so I connected a lot with her. I mean, you and I were chorus people. So there was good old Conahan and the Conavan, <laughs> which, which in retrospect was really a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Conaman. She not have been driving us around anywhere. And what were our parents thinking? That that was not good. Um, Mrs. Spieth, I, there are lessons that I have used as a 12th grade English teacher that I remember doing this activity in her class and it really helped. So I've applied them to my own teaching. Um, that, that was good. Were you, um, did you have a, I mean, it sounds like kind of like history English is much more so your wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah, no, I was fine in math, um, but I never felt good at it, especially cause that was my sister's strong suit my sister, the gifted one. And so I was not going to compete. Um, and, and I, I was, I mean, I was good. I was on one of the higher tracks with math. Um, I took AP Calc, uh, but it, it wasn't my thing. Um, science I liked, um, but I had some icky experiences in science too. I had some great teachers. I had some not so great teachers. I had things that, you know, I appreciated and things that I didn't. Um, so yeah, science, uh, science and math were less of my thing um, than social studies and English. But that, I think that that makes sense in who I am now. I mean, I'm an English teacher, so there you go. Yeah. And uh, when I was in middle school, somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to be either an English teacher or I want to be um, in politics and be secretary of state. So like those were my interests and they've remained my interests. So I've loved politics ever since um, uh, I want to say eighth grade with the 96 election and we had to do a report. This is pre-internet. We had to do a report on uh, Clinton versus Dole versus Ross Perot. And we had to, you know, hit all our different points. And we had to look at these journals and books and, and, you know, you're learning about like nonpartisan uh, entities. And, and ever since then, I was in love with politics to where like, you know, in high school, I wanted to write for Dennis Miller Live because that was the, the HBO political show. And that was what I was into. Again, why I say like, I didn't mesh with kids my age because I was watching and reciting stuff that like they're on Animaniacs and I'm watching HBO at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I got you. Uh, so, you know, but I, I don't think I ever knew exactly about like getting into politics, but you, you were like, what got you into what got you interested in politics where you said like that would be something you'd want to do? I get being an English teacher. There's tons of people around you to look up to and, and there's literature and, but politics, what enters your world? So my, 
without me really understanding it, my parents were into politics. I didn't know that my mom ran as Democratic judge of election in the 80s when she was a new mom. I only found that out when I started to myself get involved in 2017 with local politics. And then she said, you know, I ran. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Um, But I do remember active conversations. I vividly remember uh, the 92 election with Bill Clinton. I remember being excited. I remember watching the votes come in um, and and being engaged and involved. We had political conversations at the dinner table. They weren't debates. I can't say that because that's one area. I mean, I don't know. As much as I love my parents, there are things we don't see eye to eye on. Politics is not one of them. Mm. So, So there was no debate. It was an agreement. It was furthering. Have you heard? Have you read? And we would talk about current events and issues. Um, I was into Japanese and that thing when Bill Clinton appointed Madeleine Albright as the first secretary of state. And I was already like, oh, I love Japanese. I love foreign languages. I want to do this. Oh, and I can do it and be like Madeleine Albright. And I think that was my link in. And then somebody I would call my big sister. So my babysitter from when I was just born. She's now more of a big sister to me. She's like 12 years older, but she's always remained a part of our lives. Um, she's somebody I go to when I'm in need. She's just a, a confidant and friend. Her name is Rachel. My daughter's name is Rachel. There is a definite thought process in that for me. Uh, she worked for Ed Rendell. She's public relations in Philadelphia. So that was the time, eighth grade was the time when uh, Bill Clinton was holding his volunteer summit. And in doing so in Philly, and she got me tickets to go. So I got to meet Rendell and I got to go to this event. It was a a concert with Sister Sledge, which I guess is my first concert. Um, And I went with my dad and and got to meet some people. And I'm like, this, this is cool. I got to ask you, was Javier's dad there? I have no idea. Javier's dad played, played guitar in Sister Sledge. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. And oh, now you're thinking, God. I can totally remember like the We Are Family and the, oh, and yeah. the balloons on this. Like I totally remember that being like the 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 theme. Yeah. So his dad was was one of the, not the main, but was one of the guitar players in Sister Sledge. Yeah. That's so funny. I have no idea, but I guess it it's like more than possible because it was Philly. So yeah. why not? Um, so I was into it then. I think I was always up for to challenge someone with an opposing political view. But as I said earlier, my goal was about having kids. So I got to a point in high school where I was beginning to think about what I wanted to do. And I decided, and sometimes I wonder if I made the right decision. I decided being a teacher was the most conducive means of being a mom. And so I decided that was therefore what I was going to pursue at the time. Um, So I became a teacher. I was really lucky. I finished school on a Friday, again, three and a half years in. Uh, So I had my interview in December, finished school on Friday, interviewed at Central Bucks on Monday morning, then Jenkintown on Monday afternoon, got home from Jenkintown and Central Bucks offered me the job. Wow. Wow. So I was teaching immediately because then Jenkintown also offered me a job and I turned it down, but agreed to substitute for them until my official job started at Central Box. So I subbed it to Jenkintown for a little, but 
that became the plan. Little did I know that being a teacher and a mom is actually really not conducive at all because there's no flexibility. If my kids are sick, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, if my kids are sick, my poor kids can be sitting in the nurse's office for an hour because first of all, I teach pretty far away. And second, I have to wait in my classroom until they find somebody to cover for me. And I have been in the situation where they've kept me there for an hour and my kid is barfing and then, and I can't get there. They won't let me leave. And then, you know, you have in-service days. So the summers are great (laughs) with the kids, but otherwise no. And all the work of grading and lesson planning and things on the weekend. Oh my gosh. It it was not at all (laughs) what I thought I was getting myself into. But I always intentionally left the door open for other things. So most of my fellow young teachers go get quick master's degrees in education through sometimes online programs or satellite programs to move up the ladder of teaching. And I really felt it was important for me to do a real, not that they're not real degrees, do a more in-depth degree, go to a place like Villanova Um, and get my degree in English as opposed to education because I didn't want to pigeonhole myself. I didn't only want to be education forever. I wanted to leave a door open. Um, So I was always interested and I'd take the kids to go vote and I vote at Shady Grove. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just so happened that I always ran into my state rep, Mary Jo Daly at the polls. So in 2016, not because of the way that the vote turned out, but because of where my life was. My kids were both then in elementary school. I was finished my master's and my post-master's things. I had moved from the middle school to the high school and I was where I, as far as I wanted to be in education, I figured, well, now it's time. If I'm seriously considering changing my future career or my the rest of my career from being a teacher to being involved in politics. Obviously, politics is not a spectator sport. You need to get involved. You need to make contact and you need to start doing that if 10 years from now, you might want to make a move. So I, uh, I stopped and chatted with her for a while and she gave me her card and said, call me after the election. Um, and then we all know how the election turned out. And I, yeah, <laughs> and I was certainly still enthusiastic myself about getting involved, but now even perhaps more so. So I called Mary Jo and she and I met for coffee and she said, well, you have to get in touch with your area leaders, Shelly Waldman and um, Sibby Fiambolis. And I'm like, wait, who? <laughs> because Jeez. we went to school with Alex Fiambolis. And his older sister, Andrea Fiambolis, went to Wissahickon, and her husband, um, Matt Brockway, mm. uh, was also a Wissahickon grad. They were a year ahead of us okay. in school. But what was really coincidental was my son was in school in Shady Grove, and his best friend was uh, is their son. The, the Brockway's son. Wow. So I had already reconnected with Andrea and we were setting up play dates for our kids. And I'm like, oh, I need to call your mom. <laughs> wow. So I called her. It was the night before the Women's March. And she and I spoke for over an hour and she made me a committee person right away with the, the local party. 
because they were in need. So it was sort of kismet. I mean, we talked earlier about luck, mm. you know, but things worked out. Um, and then I was in a few of the meetings and it was time for municipal elections, odd years or municipal years. And they said, we really need somebody to run for Whitpain Township Auditor. And I'm not, as we said, I am not a math person. And I said, well, what does that do? And they said, well, it's really just a figurehead position. They don't actually do any of the auditing, which is true. Uh, it, it is more about communication, communicating with the public. And I'm like, that I can do. So sure, put me on the ticket. I will run. This will be my avenue to begin. And I got schooled really fast in what is involved in running a political campaign. I'm thinking, yay, I'll be in a couple of pictures and mailers and this will be cool. Oh my goodness, I was knocking on doors four nights a week, fundraising, meeting people, uh, doing all kinds of things that I never imagined. Meeting, I mean, I was so fangirl struck <laughs> several times in different fundraisers and I'm hanging out with Val Arkush and I'm like, I voted for you when you ran for Congress. Oh, I really made a, a complete idiot of myself. Um, but I got into it through that. I had a great running mate, Michelle Minnick. She was running for supervisor. I was running for auditor and she'd been involved, but never run before. Um, and, and we worked and we worked our butts off and she taught me what to do. And we had some guidance from people at the county level who were very supportive. And, uh, and we made a go and she won, which was a, a big deal yeah. in Whitpain. And I won, I think I was the first democratic auditor for the township. Uh, and then just because of the way that, that things worked out in my first auditor meeting, I was made chair of the board of auditors. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll, I will be the chair. Uh, so that was it. That was the game. Um, and we no soon we got out of the election in November, and I met with um, one of the leaders of the county party with Michelle. That the, a month after or two weeks after, and I thought we were getting ready to dissolve the pack, the political pack that she and I had to form, which I was really glad for because I was the one who had to set that up, and there really wasn't much guidance and how to do it. And you have to put like your social security number to it and it's going to like the IRS. And I was really scared I screwed something up. So the sooner that I could end my relationship with this, the happier I was going to be. And instead the conversation was, so you're going to run for supervisor in two years. And I was like, wait, what? And I think, I think I hyperventilated that no, that this couldn't happen. This was a big strain on my family. I needed to take some time and figure this out. And man, they wear you down because by June, I agreed that I'd run. So I ran again in, uh, in 2019. And for the first time in 320 years, the, the Democrat team that I was a part of, we flipped Whitpain's board and, uh, and took control of the board. So now we have a four to one majority wow. and have been able to pass legislation that means a lot to me. Um, because of my values and my beliefs, why I wanted to get into politics, um, those things really matter to me. And, and I feel like we've done some good. We bought Mermaid Swim Club, so it's not oh. going to be 52 houses now. So we saved that. And as of today, it's officially open to the public for walking and trail walks and things, which is. So clear this up, because we talked about this on the reunion special um, with uh, with um, with Brianna and Eric. 
Um, as far as what's going on in that area, there's been all this talk about it was sold, it wasn't sold, it was it closing, was. it's becoming a park. What? Yeah. So it's what is this thing? What's happening with this place? It's right. such a so huge. I'm, I'll give you. I'll give you the real story of how this went down. So. It was clear that the owners, they were three siblings, wanted to sell or two of the three wanted to sell. Um, and many residents came to the township asking them to, to try to get involved. And they were not super receptive to that um, publicly about getting involved and trying to take the property. And so a deal was struck between the, uh, the siblings and a developer and they, uh, a developer bought the entire tract of land for $3.1, $3.2 million. I forget which one off the top of my head. I think it was $3.2 million, which is a steal. I mean, this is a 63 and a half acre property. And then they, their plan was to put in 52 homes, which obviously would have pretty major impact on the community. Um, And we knew that neighbors didn't want this and we certainly didn't want it part of our platform was trying to protect open space mm. and keeping the township, you know, a place with trees and life and not as much traffic if possible. So that was very important to us. And we, we ran on the idea that we would try to save mermaid, have the township purchase it, handle it through eminent domain if necessary, but that we were committed to preserving this land. Um, and didn't hear much from the other side until the primary when it kind of, I think, became more clear that this was what the community wanted. And so then everybody was saying, we're going to save Mermaid. And the then board was working to try to then protect it with a different level of urgency than I I certainly perceived uh, prior to that point. Um, So the township entered into some negotiations with the developer and those had been ongoing for a while. And finally, we came to an agreed upon sale price and the township purchased it at that price. And the price is quite a bit more than 3.2 million. I think we were 8.2 million about that. Um, But the the reason for it is, um, I mean, the original sale price was a steal. Obviously, the owners did not understand what the property value was. And the development company who's in this for a living, buying and selling a property to develop is, they are aware of what the property's worth. So we had our own evaluation done as the township, what the property cost. They did theirs as well. Um, and quite frankly, we still got, you, can, you can't take the property for less than it's actually valued for. So yes, we bought it for more, but if we had if we hadn't paid that price, we couldn't have taken them to court and said, "See, we want to take this for three point two. It doesn't work that way. It's worth more than that. So we actually, in court, would have probably wound up paying millions more than the eight point two that we bought it for. So yes, they made a huge profit for having a property for less than a year. But that's but, why you move fast and and you you're in those industries yeah. to flip it. Yeah. So as far as what it is now, um, the pool is in disrepair and there were lots of structures that needed to come down that were not safe. So those things have been cleared. The pool has not been cleared out of the the property. It's still there, Um, but it is in the middle of the floodplain. Like there would be problems with keeping the pool. So I can't say with any commitment one way or another, what is going to happen to it. 
Uh, the township's putting out a survey to try to feel out the residents. What do you want to do with this? And it will probably be years of us working in stages to add things. So for the time being, it's open today as trails. They've mowed some paths and they've um, fenced off places that would be unsafe for people to go. But you can go and walk the beautiful area. They've, they've done a lot of work to clean it up. So any Whitpain folk or people feeling nostalgic who want to take a, a drive down, it's supposed to be a beautiful weekend. So go enjoy. <laughs> go enjoy Mermaid. I've stated many times that I did two years of summer camp at Mermaid Lake. So it holds a, a special place in my heart. I get it. My husband and his twin brother worked there through high school and college too. So when I was going over for one of my private visits as supervisor, he's like, I could give you a tour. <laughs> I'll drive you around. So I know it, it's a special place for a lot of people. So I'm hopeful that we'll get a pool. And, and I mean, this is going to be such a gem for the community and the fact that it's not houses and we can all use it no matter what we all, we eventually wind up getting in there. I think it'll be really usable. That's like we've fun. talked about pickleball cause that's a big thing. And the basketball courts I think are close to being usable already. So lots of places for people to be. That's an exciting story just about, you know, your, your run into politics and, um, you know, I've told you it's definitely, and and I geek out with with Leslie talking about politics all the time, and um, you know, it's definitely a passion of mine. So when you talk about you know doing small steps so that in ten years you can maybe get, have your foot in the door of what you want to do, that's something that I will keep in the back of my mind. You know, as you know, yeah, I mean, it's so it, at least, and I can only speak from the Democratic side. It's an amazingly well established network. Mm. To the the point that, you know, I started this thinking that I was going to be just a little peon. And I have Congresswoman Madeline Dean on, on speed dial, and she and I will text throughout the, the day here and there when there's something going on. Or uh, I had signed my daughter up for a summer camp locally, and I got there and they weren't following the COVID uh, guidelines. And I was in this Am I crazy moment? Do I need to do something about this? And I called Val Arkush, our county commissioner. I was like, Val. And she answered on the first ring. She said, Kim, what's up? You know, I you wind up very quickly meeting really awesome people who have accomplished so much and paved the path for so many people. Um, got to enjoy a meeting with state rep Kenyatta. Uh, a couple weeks ago. I mean, just the people who are out there doing the hard work of, of advancing progressive values, they're in it to support each other. They're in it to bring people along. Um, and it's it's neat who you get to meet and what you get to hear and what you get to learn about what we can do. So we also passed a human relations ordinance so that LGBTQ plus people cannot be discriminated against in Whitpain Township for their sexuality when applying for housing or when uh, applying for a job and they weren't protected right. within our township until that. I mean, that's awesome that we've been able to do those things. And I wouldn't have known what ability we'd have to do those things without the awesome team of, of leaders throughout the County. So that's awesome. Lucky. Yeah, it's good. Um, so when you want to get into it, I'll give you, Sibby Fiambolis' number and we'll hook you up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Always out. looking for good people. Look out. I know people down in the city too. That's where you are. So yeah, yeah. You, you need those contacts. I got All you. Right. <laughs> we'll, start, we'll start the clock. 
baby yeah. steps for me. There you go. Um, you know, we talked about, um, you know, not having, or maybe not fitting in so much. Um, and one of the things that I talk about a lot on the podcast with people is that I always felt kind of like out of place as far as like a maturity level from, you know, a dating perspective, from a party perspective, just everything that it seemed like, you know, the large and mass group of kids were doing was very outside of my realm. I didn't date. I didn't, I didn't go to parties. I didn't drink. Um, for you socially, were you, I, you did date, right? In high school. I kind of remember you dating. Yeah. Well, so, you know, but I, but as I said, I don't know that I dated. I think I was husband shopping. I think that would be the more accurate way of, of putting it. Like I didn't date with the intention of trying on shirts and seeing how they fit. I dated with, I will be in love and you will be in love and we will be married and beautiful things will come and I will plan our wedding. And you know that was a different. So I don't know that I don't like, I don't know that anyone I dated was ever on the same page with me as far as making plans. I mean, so Derek Johnson was my, my high school sweetheart. We dated through the end of junior year, senior year, and we stayed together all of freshman year at college. Um, but we weren't in the same place, you know, he was in a different place than I was. I was in a different place than him. And, uh, and it was, it was natural for that to to end, but I did date. I didn't drink. Mm -hmm. I think once my parents were out of town and I had left me home and I think I had a couple of friends over and maybe put like a teaspoon of, of rum in, in, (laughs) no, I'm saying this and I'm going to get in trouble my future political career. This is bad, but that was it. I didn't, I didn't drink at all my whole freshman year of college either. Um, I don't know. I don't know why other than I was, I really didn't want to get in trouble. Like mm. one of my biggest fears was getting in trouble. I never cut a class. I never, cause there, I just, no, <laughs> I wasn't going to get in trouble. It was not who I was. So I'm a rule follower. I tell my students I'm a rule follower. They're like, why do you make us do this? No other teacher does. I said, because I don't want to get in trouble because of you. Mm. So so you're going to not get me in trouble because I'm going to make you follow the rules. This is what we're going to do. I don't know if that hindered me. I also have discovered and still have the, I'm a really, I'm a, I'm a cheap date as the expression goes one drink in and I may be silly and saying some ridiculous things or, uh, in the corner asleep. So I, I sort of sip, I sip one drink throughout the course of the night and that's all I can do. Um, so I'm still not much of a drinker. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it hurts me socially anymore. I'm, I'm very little. I drink on podcasts now. Like that's my, uh, <laughs> like, you know, like that's when I, I, I'm a social drinker, but I, as far as like just drinking, just to drink, yeah. I, I don't really do it anymore. No, me either. And I guess I also, I developed really bad issues with migraines in the last oh. six, seven years. So when I have to take migraine medicine, which up until recently, I was getting migraines four or five times a week. Um, so if I'm taking migraine medicine, you can't also drink right. on that. So I, I am with you there. Let me ask you this, you know, cause some students have talked girls have talked about this specifically, um, Paige and Leslie, you know, not really having that social interaction with boys in middle school. 
Um, and then getting to high school and puberty. And, you know, it's one thing for like you to kind of, to have like one vision of, of yourself or what you want out of a relationship to kind of control your own destiny. But then it's another when you hit high school and you've got boobs, right? And Wait, boys, really? <laughs> well, now boys are actually actively trying. Was that like a thing for you to be like, holy shit, got, now guys are actually trying to talk and guys are trying to make moves. Guys are trying, you know what I mean? Like it's- So, so, so boys would, if they didn't know me, Oh. I was I was a nerd, you know, and so if it was an upperclassman who really didn't know who I was, then then, yes, guys who socially would not have had anything to do with me were interested in me. Um, my sophomore year boyfriend went to Episcopal Academy. I met him because I took voice lessons. And he and I did a duet in one of my voice teacher's performances. He was like Mr. High School, you know, captain of the football team and the softball team and drank every weekend and did all of the things that you see in the made for TV movies that high schoolers are supposed to do. And if he had known me, he never would have expressed interest in me. And that's actually why we broke up was he was 18. I was 15. And then I turned 16 and my mom threw a surprise birthday party for me. And Stacy, Carrie and Kathy were there and had invited the other friends to be there. And he realized that all my friends were 16, <laughs> like no doubt. And therefore I, that he was ready to do things that clearly I was not going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he broke up with me the day after my birthday wow. <laughs> because, because he finally understood who I was. But out of context, I was interesting to people. I mean, I say that about my husband. He's eight years older than I. We met at a bar. Mm -hmm. um, and he was definitely much more of Mr. High School than I ever was. He was, the, he was a jock. You know, he was, he was more popular and more popular in college. And he's like, oh, I definitely would have wanted to be with you when, when you know, if we had been the same age and you were in high school, you know, when we share stories about growing up. And I look at him like, no, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have had anything to do with me. And quite frankly, I wouldn't have had anything to do with you either because yeah. I would not have had time. And I didn't have time for that kind of behavior and those choices. I knew those people weren't going to be into me and I wasn't into them. And we were doing so, camarada three days a week. I mean, what? I know, right? We were rocking out early in the morning for select choir and getting in the Conavan and singing at the Montgomery Mall. What? <laughs> so that brings me to the, I want to definitely talk about high school musicals, music in general. This is something that I feel very strongly about um, in that I absolutely, you know, I felt cheated in high school, not having Mr. Conahan the entire high school run. So in talking to, you know, JP and Mike Clyburn and Barclay, who have just these stories of Mr. Hood and what an impact that Mr. Hood was and, and knowing, you know, Adam Greger and, and, and just all these kids who had these relationships with Mr. Hood. And that's what I felt like we were starting to develop with Mr. Conahan, but it was our, it was our senior year. 
that yeah. that was starting because we didn't have him. And, and, you know, we had Mrs. Reckner through most of middle school and then every semester was taking sabbaticals. So yeah. I'm going to tell you my story, Kim. Good. Tell me your story and then I'll tell you mine. And then you respond because <laughs> it involves you. So senior Uh-oh. year. Oh, yeah. I'm going there. Senior year. We were doing My Fair Lady. I did not want to do My Fair Lady. We were all told, hey, if all the guys sign up, we can do something badass for the guys. So I'm thinking, great, we're going to do something new and badass for the guys. I'm all in on this. I've been doing musicals now since sixth grade. This is 12th grade. I feel like I paid my dues. Mrs. Reckner's known me since sixth grade. I'm like her loudest guy. She selected me for all the musicals. Now it's my time. She puts all the seniors in the leads. So we do this whole audition thing. And prior to the audition, word comes out that someone has found a casting list. And that the roles are already predetermined. I go through a grueling like five hour audition for whatever role it was. I can't remember with Vern back to back, back to back, go in the private room, sing here privately. Back Kyle Spies, right? Yep. Kyle Spies. But Vern and I were specifically going for like the same role. I knew I wasn't going to get the Kyle, which I'll be honest, missed me a little bit that Kyle was coming in like out of nowhere into a role because I definitely felt like, you know, I felt like the good looking white guys. And I felt like honestly, the good looking white guys were coming in, taking her attention out of nowhere when they hadn't really put in the work, but you know, going through it and the list comes out of the roles And I'm given like a side role of like someone's friend. And I'm pretty sure, correct me if I'm wrong, your name was whited out off of this list. Is this? I, well, I didn't have a, I was basically chorus and then I was a maid. But as I recall this, when we're looking at it, there was like one change to the list that like, is that not how it happened? No, no. Ellen Opplinger was going to get that part. So in my, in my understanding, for some reason, I was like, for some reason I was like roped into thinking that you had some sort of a beef that had happened and that you weren't going to do the musical. Correct. I wasn't going to do it. Um, but it was because look, I mean, uh, chorus and Reckner and Conahan is complicated. And I'm, I can, so I can only speak from my experience and that's all I will speak to. I understand that there are complicated um, relationships between Conahan and other people. Mm -hmm. And there, there were, you know, certainly accusations that were made about him. Um, And I would neither claim to know that they were true or false because I had nothing to do with them. But I, I can speak to the relationship that I had with him and it was wonderful and he was really supportive of me and and good for me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm with you. That was so important to me. And 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 he used to let me come down and just sing, mm-hmm. you know, like I could just go into a closet and sing when I when I really needed to. And oh, that was beyond what I needed as a teenage kid. Um, so. I mean, we all knew as far as Reckner was concerned that she always had her quote unquote favorites. Mm-hmm. And I knew I wasn't it. I knew that Ellen Opplinger was it. 
And when it became clear that she had chosen My Fair Lady, I mean, I didn't even have to think about who she cast. I knew. We all knew. I remember the conversations about us all knowing. And I don't mean that in any disparaging way towards Ellen. She was a great performer. She's a fan. She was someone who was willing to take risks mm-hmm. in acting and, and had that up on me no matter what. I, I felt at the time that I was a better singer, but she was by far a better actress. So I appreciate that. And I don't, I don't, um, I never begrudged her mm-hmm. having a, a lead part. What I begrudged was the decision to choose a musical that limited so many participants. And as someone who has gone on to direct shows for kids, I feel that it's a personal obligation in a public school for a director to choose shows that allow multiple students opportunities. That's something that I believe. These are kids. This is not a professional performance. You give kids the chance because that's what makes their life better. I don't care if they're good or bad. It helps their lives. Mm. So you give them chances. So it sucked that she did that. It sucked that she did it for the men because there were no real good men parts. That whole show is really about one woman. And that was it. Um, So I remember that audition. She made me go first. And I prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared with my voice teacher, with Conahan for that audition. Mm -hmm. And I know that I blew it away. Mm -hmm. And in in both cases, because we had to sing the like classical fancy when she speaks correctly and we had to do the Cockney to accent thing. I worked on that and I know I nailed it. And I went back an hour after auditions. My dad drove me over. And I saw the list and I knew what it was going to be walking over. You know, I knew it. Um, and it had Ellen. And then I looked at the next part was, which the only other like real part for a woman was her like immediate housekeeper or something. And that was Stephanie Schneck. And again, Stephanie Schneck, a by far better classical singer than I, I be, don't begrudge her that either. Um, but then there was nothing left for me. I was one of the assistant maids who sang little chorus parts and that was it. Um, and so my, I mean, my heart was broken. Uh, I went home, I was devastated. I laid on the couch crying. It was, it was one of the moments where like, so, you know, high school relationships are what they are, but Derek, Derek stepped to the plate and he came over and I think I laid on his lap, sobbing my eyes out for three hours. And he just sat there with me. So way to go. He did a really good job. <laughs> I will give him that. Um, and then I went to school the next day and I had a killer migraine because I couldn't stop crying. And I did long and hard think about not doing it, not out of, not out of like, I'm going to show you, but out of um, just trying to recognize in myself, was this going to be healthy? Is it worth it to do something that's going to break your heart every day? And so I did speak to Reckner about it. And I told her the way that I felt. Um, and I told her how I felt it was wrong for her even to have selected that show. Um, and you know, she, she discussed with me, but there was nothing she was going to change. And I didn't expect her to. It was more that I felt like I needed to have that conversation. Um, but I, I did decide to stay in it, which quite frankly was probably the wrong thing for my own mental health. Cause it hurt. It hurt every day. 
that was so important to me. That was what I lived for in school. And I don't, I mean, it sounds like you felt a really similar way and having to watch your friend have this moment, their senior year and the amazing costumes. And like, you're just, it hurts. It hurts so deeply. Um, And then what made it worse, and I don't know that people know this uh, about me, was the week before the show or the week of the show. And maybe this is what you remember with my name being crossed off. um, I developed a golf ball size lump on one of my breasts um, out of the blue and had to go and see the gynecologist and then had to have multiple like images and ultrasounds and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So as an 18 year old alone in this ultrasound room, there were then like seven technicians staring at me and, and my body, which as you said, you know, I'm a teenager, I've just developed this and now I'm I'm wearing it all and there's something wrong and I'm scared I'm going to die of cancer. Um, and then I had to go to a breast surgeon. I had to have it aspirated, um, which is they stick a big needle in and they try to suck out anything that's in there, which was incredibly painful. And this was happening during tech week of the show. Um, and so I was crying constantly over both things. I, I not only had the pain of what the musical was for me, but I was truly afraid for my life and what this meant. Um, And so she wasn't, Reckner was not super supportive. Like she was fine when I missed the first day, but then it was like, well, maybe you shouldn't be in the show. And then I was just so angry. I was so angry that she would put me in that situation. Um, But speaking about Conahan, after the audition, he he was at the auditions. I don't know if you remember that. I don't. Um, he drove over to my mom's work and sat with her for an hour and talked about what the process had been in auditions. And like, it was really nice to know that Conahan was supportive of me, but I don't think that that helped me emotionally to know that. Like that just made me feel further scorned. Everyone's making you feel justified in your feeling of mistreatment. Yeah. Um, and again, I really, I really want to be clear that there was never any feeling of begrudging staff. There was never any feeling of begrudging Ellen. They deserved those parts. Totally. I just felt that I deserved one too. Yeah. And that the show should not have been picked for one person. It, it, that's not what a high school show is supposed to be. I was heartbroken um, because, you know, doing Godspell at that point, coming off of like, you know, Dreamgirls, which for me was Dreamgirls was like the craziest thing I'd ever done. Right. I pull my pants off and like that was me just being able to be a clown for, for an hour and a half and also be a supporting role. But like the biggest supporting role without the, the pressure of being a lead. And so going into high school. And I remember being so proud of Godspell and just seeing how I was kind of allowed to be worked into the parable core and given speaking roles. And I'm Me like, too. wow, it's like, this is how it's going to go. This feels. And I remember her saying, I want people to leave here. And it's funny because what you say, like what the expectations were. But I remember Mrs. Reckner saying, I want people to leave here and not say that was good for a high school show. Yeah. I want them to see that was one of the best I've ever I've ever seen. I know. I remember that line, too. And that meant a lot I- to me. And the disappointment yeah. 
from year to year of then doing such a small show, like you're a good man, Charlie Brown, despite the fact that I wear that t-shirt three times a week, <laughs> it, it's, it, it was just really disappointing to have such a, a small cast and then to do MAME, which to me, again, not knowing much about it. And I apologize. I told Jill Kavanaugh to her face. I have no idea what's happening while we were in the final week of the show. I'm like, I'm just here hitting my marks. I got no clue. She says louder. I go, I, I MAME. Played, <laughs> I played her best friend. That was my lead role in high school was my junior year, which really set me up to being excited for senior year. Right. So she, you know, she had given us, Mrs. Reckner had given us this, this talk of like, if all the guys and, and, you know, Kyle was in at this point and Vern, myself and Brandon Deese. And I think Mike yeah. Nichols was flirting with this. And we all thought we were doing Greece. Oh, we, and I'm like, fuck. Yeah. There's like, there's like five guys. Like everyone's got songs and parts. And and you know what? That would have been a good show to choose because if all of the options for the guys, but it's the same for the girls, there's Sandy, there's Rizzo, there's all of the other queen, pink ladies. Beauty queen dropout. There's everyone's, yeah. everyone is the, the audience is allowed to have a favorite where it doesn't matter who the lead is. They can all go, Oh, I liked Rizzo or I like Kanicki. Yeah. Same thing with like guys and dolls. It would have been the same scenario. So many options. So when that all happened, I was like, and, it, and they picked my fair lady. Um, and then I heard that you weren't going to do it. I thought that sounds like a great idea. I'm out. Oh. And I left. I quit. I told her, I said, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And, um, you know, I had so many mixed emotions, especially once I found out that you were, you were still in. Um, and it's interesting. I wish we talked about this. I know. And, and I'll be honest, I probably like, I probably made like, Oh, you're not quitting now. I probably like said something like that. Cause I think I felt like a loser. Like I gave up, like yeah. that's the real world. You don't get everything you want, but you still got to put in, but it's interesting to hear you talk about the torment that oh, yeah. it was to be able to, because that's what I feared. And I thought the most hell. mature, yeah, I thought the most mature decision of my of my life at that point was to make that decision of I can't do this four hours a day, four days a week if I don't want to do if I don't want to if I don't even like what I'm doing in my senior year. I didn't want to commit that time in my senior year to doing a show that I felt so slighted by. I felt like I put in all that work to have this role, and if I can't have this role, I don't want to keep doing this. I've done that. I'm out. Good for you. And, well, I, I remember though, and really not until talking to you, did I, I always kind of regretted or felt like I made the wrong decision and I never knew how you felt about it. Um, and I remember sitting there watching it and just like watching it in the crowd. And I went to like the cast, the cast, uh, you know, party, not the, the, but like the gathering at friendlies after the first night and, oh, yeah. and that feeling of like, you know, everyone, you have that camaraderie with everyone. But you didn't but not a part of it. Didn't do it. And I was there as like a friend with everyone. Like you guys killed it. It was great. And everyone's kind of like, oh yeah, Brad, you should have been there. I'm like, yeah, I got it. But it felt phony. It felt like I didn't belong. And it it's one of those things like I always regret. Now I I ended up going into that's when I focused on video and film and I went to TV lab. And that's what I did with all my spare time. And now here we are. But there you go. Up until that moment when I dropped out. I always thought I was going to go to, to college as a theater major. I thought, and so when you talk about like this unrealistic fairy tale future dream, that's how I live my life. And I thought I, was, I thought I was going to Broadway. 
that's what I want, right? I was acting. I was like, this is what I thought was my world was going to Broadway and being a performer. And that moment killed it. Well, so I'm with you. I felt that that killed it for me too. And then going to Bucknell, I was excited to have a different opportunity to participate in musical theater. And I got there and I had been told, oh yeah, we'll do musical theater. You know, we don't do it a ton, but but we'll do it for sure. And there was a uh, guest professor who was a former alum who was there and she had been working on writing her own plays and musicals. So there was a musical. Gutterballs the musical was <laughs> what Gutterballs, which <laughs> is actually really fun. It was really fun. And I got the lead my freshman year. But like we performed in a cafeteria. It was not the main stage production by any means. And that was the only musical my entire time at Bucknell. So all of the other productions were these highfalutin things that were absurd and weird. <laughs> like just, you know, weird things that you expect weird college professors to yeah. pick. That's what they were. Um, and I always had teeny tiny bit parts. So not only had Reckner killed this, but I went to college and I didn't feel redeemed in any sense of the word. So it was over. Mm. It was just, that was gone. Pretty interesting. I've always wanted to talk to you about this. <laughs> well, now we have. <laughs> now I got it. <laughs> How did you choose Bucknell? All right. So I was determined that I wanted to go to UVA oh. for whatever reason. And I don't remember why I got it in my head. That's where I wanted to go. And my parents, you know, were really annoying and they made me go visit schools. And so we drove down to Virginia to Richmond and William and Mary and UVA. And I did, visited Georgetown and I was a total brat and like didn't talk to them because I didn't need to go visit. You know, I was definitely being my grumpy teenage self in that that moment but thank god they made me go down there because we got to richmond and i went wow this is really pretty but oh that was really far and i don't like that um so then we went to william and mary and oh i fell in love with william and mary it was absolutely beautiful it was the kind of place i wanted to be the environment i wanted to be but it was in williamsburg virginia and that was too far and we drove up to UVA and we were there 15 minutes and I was like, nope, this is not it. <laughs> we're going. <laughs> I didn't even apply. Um, but I got home from that trip and I went, I love William and Mary, but I know myself. I'm going to be homesick. I can't do this. So let's find William and Mary closer. And we went over to Bucknell and I went, well, yeah, that's what this is. This is William and Mary, but two and a half hours, not six and a half hours away. So I didn't apply early because I wanted to leave myself room to change my mind. Um, but they they gave they did accept me, obviously, and they gave me a really good financial aid package. So um, and scholarships, so I could make that work. And my parents are awesome, and I didn't have to pay for any of it. No student loans because of those scholarships and things. And um, and that was great. So it was good, and it really was everything that I needed it to be in a school. Um, but I was ridiculously homesick. I spent the entirety of freshman year crying like every day, <laughs> every day. <laughs> Sobbing. So. That's pretty incredible considering now you live down the street from home. 
Well, I remember graduating and going, why should I have to go away to college? I know what I want to do. Just like, let's get on with life. I don't need to go to college and come back here in four years. Let's just go. Mm. <laughs> so. All right. Speed round of generic questions. Favorite artist, song, group, music in high From school? From then? Yeah. In high school? Oh, Sarah McLaughlin. Yep. I was all about that. Uh, favorite song? With I Will Remember You by Sarah McLaughlin. I really liked Faith Hill's Breathe. Oh, yeah, I was so cool. <laughs> you were just all Lilith Fair. And, right? I was. That was my really first conference or concert. That was it. I went to Lilith Fair. <laughs> that was a thing. That was a big movement. You know, I, I was, know. I was big into Jewel. I was huge into Jewel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, movie. In high school? I have no clue. Ooh. Uh, I, I mean, I really liked the Julia Roberts ones, like my best friend's wedding. Oh, I was such a, a nerd. My favorite movie in college was Runaway Bride with uh, Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. But I think that that was just past. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That's my best guess. Yeah, like that's one of those. Yeah, that's one of those. Like uh, they're all sitting around the table singing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Ever, Yep. Um, okay. That was all of them. That was it. That was it. That was That's your last round of generic questions. That's it. Yeah. Unless Got I it. ask you least favorite teacher. I don't always ask it, but sometimes I do. I will never forgive Mrs. McDonough. I don't biology. Biology. Forgive. Why? No, so I was on the, the path to be valedictorian and third marking period senior year, um, which was when the musical was going on and when I found the big old breast lump, um, I bombed a test. And so I was going to finish with like an 89. And so so your so third marking period senior year was where they, they cut it off and you had to have all A's. And um my mother called her. My mom never called my teachers. My mom called her and said, look, this is what's going on. Can you let her retake the test or something? And she was apparently so offended that my mom called that she therefore refused to let me. And so she gave me the B. And that really broke my, like it added to the heartbreak of, of what that year had been. Um, and, and as a teacher, there are absolutely times when it's the appropriate thing to give a kid another chance. Um, and, and given what I had been experiencing, it was, it was the right, it would have been the right thing to do to give me another chance. Um, I'm going to go through your, your yearbook here in a second, but I, I want to ask you a very serious question. Just a follow up to that. Just okay. all the things that we've kind of like gone through. I won. I I'm just curious. I'll just ask it flat out. And it's a weird thing to ask, but you know, you're, you're a pretty blonde who, you know, did well in school, who was pretty well involved, but that can garner a very negative reaction at times mm -hmm. from people due to their own insecurities at, at many times. Do you think any, you know, these things that were going on, the Reckner stuff, McDonough and, and, and just other slights, do you think any of this had to do with just your kind of like, goody two shoes, all American, I guess, stereotypical. And not that you were that person. But no, no, I follow were, you. 
you know, do you think that do you think that you were battling? And this is weird to ask, like just the like you said, like a, a plain white girl, as, as you kind of like describe yourself, right? To talk about where you discriminated against, but do you think you were discriminated against because of just kind of your presentation? I don't know. I mean, I guess I could see that that who I am could rub people the wrong way. It could, maybe maybe it's intimidating. Maybe. Um, okay. Uh, at the same time, I have to be honest and understand that the way that I look and who I am has opened doors to me that probably wouldn't be open to someone else. So turnabout's fair play if I've been discriminated against in any way or if I intimidate people and therefore that they've reacted to me in some way because of the way that I look and, and the way that I present in turn, I've, I know I've had opportunities that, uh, that I wouldn't have had. So I think that's fair. It's a really good answer. I, I think that people would perceive that I leave it, live a charmed life. And I think I look like I have the all American. I mean, my dog's in the background, got the two and a half kids and the cat, you know, and I got it all going for me. And I can't deny that I don't, I do. I have an awesome life, but even with an awesome life, I don't, you know, you hide a lot and you intentionally or unintentionally, I mean, people don't know all your business. You don't air your dirty laundry everywhere you go. And it doesn't mean that just because it looks one way, it is one way. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm very lucky and I'm very grateful. Um, I don't know that, I don't know that it always looks like as much of a balancing act as it is. Um, no, I, I get that. And, and especially as you become an adult, but you know, I, when things feel like out of spite and you start like recognizing a pattern of how people act, it's like, well, it doesn't, like you said, like when a child asks for a second chance, like yeah. there's no reason to not give it. So it just felt like, I just wanted to ask if you were, yeah. if you ever felt that way personally, or if they just kind of seemed like individual incidents happening all around the same time. I think that if I felt like I was being treated badly that it probably didn't have anything to do with my looks, but may have to do with being a nerd or being a goody two shoes or being, or or needing to be put in my place. I never had a feeling that anything had to do with being a blonde girl. Um, It's funny because those are kind of all the negative descriptors that you hear about women in politics when they're being criticized. Those are a yeah. lot of the common, like, oh, she needs to be put, or you know, or she's eager, or she's too ambitious, or too, right? Those are kind of verses, you know. It's always described as differently, so it's, you know, all that was is just very as it, it was all hit in my head. I was like, this is a really interesting dichotomy yeah. that you're kind of dealing with. Yeah, but at the same time, it also, you know, I, I'm not a person of color, and I imagine it would be more difficult to get into politics if I was. So it opens doors and it closes doors. Is it? Yeah. You know, it's really a healthy way to look at it. Well, thanks. I try. All right. Thank Here's you. Wait, we're <laughs> going to go real fast. There you are. It looks just, you look exactly the same. I'll be honest. Ah, you know. I wish. <laughs> um, Thank you all. <laughs> what is PYEA? You did it for three years. Pennsylvania Youth Education Association. Okay. Asian Studies, Key Club, yep. Interact, yep. Musical, yep. Drama Club, Trojan yep. Times, Graduation Project Committee. I was there too. Uh, cross country for one year when you broke your foot. Mm-hmm. National Honor Society. Oh, yes. Pretty full card, pretty, pretty involved. Faith oh. is believing in something when common sense tells you not to. 
You still there? Miracle, Miracle on 34th Street, the old one. Okay. Uh, an amazing love to my mom, dad, and friends. E.H. Emily Hofield. Yeah. Look at me. S.C. Steph Christ. No, probably. Oh. Steph Cohen. Okay. M.H. No idea. No way. I, I can't think of it. No. E.O. Ellen Oplinger. Yep. Uh, and the girls. Is there another group of the girls? Probably. Lower tier. Uh, third friends. Third round friends. <laughs> no, that was probably Stacey, Kathy, Carrie, Kimmy. You know, like, the normal crew. <laughs> yeah. Um, your support is unreal. DJ, I love your devious smiles and blue eyes. Derek did have pretty eyes, didn't he? He did. <laughs> he Kim, did. I know you got to go. This yeah. has been like so much fun. It has. Thank Thanks so, so much. much, Brad. I really appreciate it. And let's keep in touch because you never know, you know, I might have some more questions on political things or whatever, but just in general, let's keep in touch because you're fun to talk to. You are too, Brad. I'd love to. We can commiserate more about musical theater. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. Bye. Bye. All right. That was my conversation with Kimberly Kosh. So, like I said, I knew I was going to talk to Kim about music and musicals, and Mrs. Reckner, and Mr. Conahan. I obviously didn't know Kim's entire story or even the correct version of it, so I appreciate her sharing her very honest story with me and subsequently with all of you. And I do have to say, I found Kim's perspective so much healthier than mine. The way she talked about not being mad that someone else may have gotten a part that she wanted, but the fact that There were no other parts for her. And in my situation where I was going head-to-head with someone for a role in My Fair Lady, I never looked at it that way, that I was more upset that there just weren't other parts. Again, talking about wanting to do Grease because there were so many roles. I don't think I've ever been able to focus my frustration in the right direction. I've kind of joked a little bit about animosity towards Vern, who I was in competition with. But I think the way that Kim put it, I was truly much more upset with the fact that we didn't have an option that was satisfactory for all of us to shine. And Kim really nailed that feeling. By the time we got to the end of the interview, Kim did have to go. But one of the things I wish I had an opportunity to talk to Kim about was her interest in African-American literature. That kind of came out of nowhere, and I don't think it registered until going back and listening to this episode again and like, oh, wow, that's super interesting. And I just didn't get into it at all. But I felt the way that Kim spoke about a lot of things, especially when I asked her, you know, questions about the way that people treat her because of her looks. um, I just felt that she had such a grounded point of view. So I appreciated Kim's thoughts on race and diversity. So I am curious how much of her studies influenced that. I told Kim the other day, I do look forward to talking to her again. So hopefully we can keep that promise. Don't forget the day after Thanksgiving at youtube.com slash redshirt player, a special 90s movie club. Myself, previous guest, Kelly Brooke Morton, and often talked and Instagrammed about Chrissy Shuck. We're watching the skulls. So I suggest you watch the skulls and then come back the day after Thanksgiving and close out the holiday right. In two weeks, just a few days later, in two weeks, on a Monday morning, we're back in form. My guest will be Paul Cannon. Paul's another classmate from Homeroom. 
And I kind of remember brief interactions with him. I signed his yearbook. I thought he signed mine, but I didn't know a lot about Paul's life, his interactions, his friendships. And I definitely got the feeling in talking to Paul that he's looked at interactions in the past in similar ways that I have as far as friendships or acquaintances going in different directions with no clear reason why. And Paul also talks about dealing with the loss of classmate Matt Smith, who was a friend and neighbor of his growing up. I learned some things I really wasn't expecting to in this conversation. So that is in two weeks on a Monday morning, Paul Cannon. We weren't friends in high school is the Instagram account. WWF in HS is the Facebook page. And of course, YouTube.com slash RedShirtPlaya. Like the video, subscribe to the channel, be ready for Black Friday, the skulls. All right, that is it for me, guys. Hope everyone has a happy and safe Turkey Day. And I will see you the day after for 90s Movie Club with Kelly and Chrissy. Later.